hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition to Faith Unaltered. I'm your host, David Russell, and I'm here with the man, the myth, the legend, Tyler Fowler. And for the sixth week in a row, because he got stomped on Pine Creek the other week. Stomped! Dale, Money Metal Glover! What's Money Metal? <laughs> what is that? What's going Thanks on, for- big guy? Hello. Thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, just had a, a rough and tumble with Pine Creek Doug and uh, ready to get ready to get into it and hopefully have some fun. Uh, David Russell was telling me behind the scenes that uh, he's, he's a little sensitive. He, he thought I maybe went too far. So I, I promise I'll try to keep it respectful and, and nah. no, be charitable. We already got, we already got, we already got uh, Richard I, telling us to be charitable. I, well, I just probably because of your intro. I just one <laughs> funny clip, so I'll just I'll just play one funny clip in this show, and that will be it. I'll be serious for the rest of it then. So, all right, cool. Right so, on. Yeah, so I'm glad to have you here, Dale. Again, uh, you wanted a chance to respond to how things went on the Pine Creek episode, and you know this is uh this is the place to do, it. and we like we, you know we we love having you on, and we love uh, talking to you about this type of stuff, and you know shared experiences and stuff like that, and. Mm-hmm. Tyler, how was your week, buddy? It was good, and this might be an interesting debate because Pine Creek has been known to kind of chill out in our comment section a little bit, and so I know he has for the last couple of episodes that we did. I saw him comment a little bit, and so I'm excited to see what this episode brings to fruition, and so I'm excited. My week, it's been crazy tiring for some reason. Like I was telling you guys off air, I've been really, like I've been napping on the couch all day. I was, I was out last night really early. Like I work graveyard shift now. And so I was out by midnight 30 and that's not normal for me. And so it's just been a really tiring uh, week. So I don't know what's going on, but please pray for me because again, like I said, this ain't normal. It might be stress related. I don't know. But uh, all other than that, it was good. I got some wine sent from David and I'm actually enjoying a, uh, a glass of that right now. And so no, it's not in the traditional wine glass because we broke ours. Sorry about that. But, uh, yeah, uh, it, it, it it's happens. good, and it does. It, it happens. You drink hard, you you break stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's it was good. How was your guys' this week? It was good, man. I mean, uh, I, you know, I got a lot accomplished. I got a lot of scheduling done for our podcast. So, guys, we've got a great lineup coming for you in the next five shows. Pretty much booked all the way through February. Um, we're Ooh. ready to to start scheduling March. So, but yeah, we're, we're pretty much. All the way booked uh, in in February, so I'm really excited. I was able to get a lot more done with the show because school's slowing down, guys. I'm in the final stretch. I literally have two more main classes, uh, and then I have a uh, a bibliography research and writing class I got to do, and and uh, then it's on the thesis. So I am scaling back man i got more time on my hands now and and after that he's taking off three years no i'm just kidding three years (laughs) no but uh you you know get your masters and start looking boosting up your resume and start looking for things that you know you can do but other than that dale how was your week man uh incredibly busy um actually like uh yeah i've had a lot of stuff to do one one thing that i'm really happy and excited about is like at my church i've been put in charge of the bible study and apologetics program so i'm wanting starting uh in february 
so just once a month, but I'm going to be doing the evidence for the resurrection. And uh, I'm excited because I've never been allowed to, uh, I've always been a heretic. I'm a non-Calvinist, so I couldn't uh, teach or or be involved with my old church. How dare you? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's get after it. Dale, give us kind of a a little, uh, I guess, uh, intro of how this came about and how you were on Doug's show and, and what happened and, you know, just give us an overview. Yeah. So, so I've got my planned kind of timestamps and stuff. And the first thing I wanted to do is just go around and get general overall impressions. So just uh, starting off with, with myself, how, how did this come about? So, um, you know, I've, obviously I've known about Pine Creek um, for a while. I, I think even when I was back on Skeptics and Seekers, I've had some skeptics saying like, oh, you know, you should go on his show. And st- I just had no interest in that sort of thing. Right. Um especially after I saw what happened with Gary Habermas. Uh, but still, I, I kind of like Pine Creek in a, in a way. He's funny and at times and stuff like that. So, you know, I saw him commenting on some of our shows and that sort of thing. And I'd seen a show he did with Mike Lacona. I thought he did a great job on that. He was very respectful, very, you know, seemed like he was listening and raising substantive points. And um, then uh, after the last show he did, came on and we were talking about the inner witness of the Holy Spirit and Caleb said, look, I, you know, I've been on his show a couple times and he's been good. So I figured, uh, you know what, what the heck, I, I want to get his um, opinion on some of my, what I think are unique ideas or, or at the le- very least they're not uh, common, commonly brought up in Christian apologetics. So I reached out to him by email and, and asked, Hey, would, would I be allowed to come onto your show? And I am grateful to him. He said, yes, he gave, he gave me a quite a bit of time on his, on his platform. So, you know, I had three goals. One, I want, I sincerely wanted to hear what Pine Creek Doug thought. Number two, I wanted to introduce his audience to these unique ideas and at least spur some interest and make them realize maybe there's more to some of these things than we, than it uh, seems kind of thing. Right. Uh, And then thirdly, just to kind of sharpen my, my wit, because I'm not, the greatest at that and obviously pine creek is witty uh so i had to kind of be on my game and, and stuff like that so those were my goals for for being on there um yeah i i guess the the only negative thing to say is obviously it became apparent to me like he wasn't really interested in getting to the truth i think he did want to just kind of have that gotcha moment with me and stuff like that and you know that that's fine. Again, I, I was, if that happened, that was great. Um, but yeah, my, my impression is like a lot of people, atheists online and stuff, they're what thinkers, right? So instead of being intellectual and thinking about something, they'll have an emotional reaction. So if, if I say, oh, you know, for example, the shroud, something we'll be talking about tonight, the shroud, the shroud could be a medieval miracle. What, you know, what are you talking about? There's this emotional reaction. Um, and I, I think that we got to get away from what thinkers, what, if I bring something totally new, what you should be saying is why, what, why do you think that, how did you arrive at that? What's your reasoning? So that's sort of my goal there, but yeah. Do you feel like you accomplished your three goals going on his podcast? Yeah. So, so number one, I, I got Pine Creek's opinion, which is what I wanted. Uh, even if it's not what I wanted, you know, something I wanted to hear or something I disagree with, I wanted to know what does he think? So yes. Number two, absolutely. And this is why I'm so proud because 
a lot of people have been coming to me, even skeptics um, and stuff have been coming through that Pine Creek thing and asking for resources, asking for sources, sending me like videos about Walter McCrone and asking me what I thought. So number two is absolutely accomplished. And that um, uh, is great. Um, in terms of number three, um, I still, I think it's a work in progress, but I think I did a lot better than I did on other atheist shows I was on years ago. Um, I remained calm. I didn't get nervous. And I think I did pretty decent at answering his questions, even though he didn't always agree or get it. Yeah. I thought you did well, Dell. I'm, I'm just going to say it up front. I saw the, I saw the episode and I thought you handled, handled yourself very appropriately for the situation that you was in. Trust me, I've been on the hot seat before and it is not fun to be <laughs> on the hot seat. And so I give you props. Uh, Richard says that he hurt his team one granted. He didn't watch it himself. Oh, you guys froze. Oh, is that just Tyler that's frozen? Uh, you're muted. Uh, uh, what's your name? Yeah, that was just Tyler. Uh, he said, I heard my team won. Granted, I didn't watch it myself, but I trust the testimony of people who agree with me implicitly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I yeah, I will say this. For the first time ever, um, my brother... And David, you know, you know, my brother, he's been in the comments. Yeah. Uh, he's my harshest critic. Every, I send him shows after shows and he's always like, oh, you know, you, you didn't do a good job here. You should have said this or, or you know, you're blah, blah, blah. He's always critical. Uh, but this for once, he's like, yeah, you, you did a great job. Like, I understood what you were talking about and you respond. You were on point and Pine Creek wasn't. So, like, that's a win. Like, <laughs> for the first time, my brother said I did good. So. Yeah. And then, you know, there is that that aspect that you're going against or you're going not really against, but you're explaining something and you're trying to to explain it. Right. You're trying to make sure you don't misspeak and stuff. And I think that's one of the hardest things that I have to always constantly remind myself. I don't want to you know, it's kind of an insecurity in a way because you feel like, you know, did I misspeak? Did I say something wrong? Am I understanding him correctly when, you know, he's asking me something? That's the only thing I think that I took a way that maybe maybe you struggled on here and there is that that aspect of okay let me make sure i'm understanding you and sometimes it can come across like maybe you're a little uh you know you're not confident or you have some confidence issues but i don't think that that is i, I think a, a lot of that for you was just making sure that you know you were clear Cool. Do you, do you have like maybe one, uh, an example or something or two examples? Just oh, so, like there's one particular point where um, you had to kind of like guess what he was saying and, and you were in the middle of a sentence and then he would he jumped in and you back were like, does this what you meant type thing? And, it, you know, the, some of the ums and the and the stammers, you know, those things happen. But uh, I think that's mainly because you're trying to be clear and you're trying to to get, OK, so where are you coming from so you don't misrepresent them, you know? And that's just, you know, I find that that's typical in a lot of uh, uh, I'm doing it now. It's typical when you're in the hot seat. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in terms of the ums and ahs, that's that's just I've got Justin Trudeau syndrome. I, I I've <laughs> always done that. Right. I think I'm getting better at it, but that's just always going to be going to be there whether I'm being grilled or not um in terms of the other things yeah so I because I, I mean look at it at the end of the day Doug was doing me a favor by letting me be on his show I resolved to myself I know the way he he operates right he has certain thought experiments he has certain points that he wants to make and so I resolved look I'm going on his show I'm the guest 
and I'm going to play play ball the way he wants to be. So if he's going to give me certain hypotheticals, I'll answer within those hypotheticals and stuff. So that I was really trying, like, how do you want me to answer? What from what perspective, or what are the what are the givens you're asking me to work with here? So that was just the gesture of respect on my my part. Yeah, absolutely. And and also, I do want you to convince me of this uh, medieval miracle. Uh, I will. (laughs) (laughs) You got that ready? Okay, man. Well, you know what? I'm going to put it in your hands. We'll wait. Uh, You know, Tyler can come back in whenever everything's good. Uh, Hopefully he gets to come back in. Um, But yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. And I just see. uh, So Kellen, you're absolutely right. It it wasn't a debate. Obviously, it was more like interrogation style. Like he's asking the questions. He's doing a probing interview type thing. So yeah. Okay, cool. So the first little clip here that I want to play for you guys, um, Tyler's coming. So this is going to be on the argument from beauty, which, um, yeah, so I'll just play it first so you guys can have the context. You guys seen that? Oh, um, yep. actually, I have to share the uh, sound, right? So many windows open. Sorry, guys. So, Okay. While we're waiting, I just want to apologize. My router reset, and so they do that every single night. I don't know why my internet company does, but sometimes it's usually like most of the time it's at late in the night. So after we've already done this, so they reset a little bit early tonight. That's why I dropped off. So my apologies. No, it's no all good, buddy. It happens, man. What did I miss, Imagine, brother? So, uh, just uh, I, I finished that comment. I finished that comment for you uh, that Rich it. put out there. Yeah, <laughs> and then. I, I talked a little bit to Dale about uh, some of the things that I, I noticed in the discussion and uh, I kicked it back to him. Okay, cool. All right. So this is the first clip. This is going to be about the argument from beauty. It's a four minute clip or something. Hey, Dale, can I ask a question real quick? Since one of our listeners brought this up. Uh-huh. Uh, so Kellen says that he, uh, I'm not sure Pine Creek would classify the. Oh, I already, I already responded. To Did that. you? Okay. It, it wasn't a debate at all. It's, it was his style of like, a probing semi-interrogation type thing, right? Like hot he's seat cross X. Sorry? Hot seat cross X. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. And that was cool. I, I signed up for it. I was happy with it. So gotcha. All right. is the argument from beauty is basically look at how beautiful things are, therefore God. Um essentially, so I the thing I wanted your take on is my I have a kind of a unique argument whereby you know, obviously the debate is always, oh, aesthetic values, they're either subjective if you're an atheist or if you're Christian, they've got to be objective. And I, I argue that actually it can be both. It's, it's a view called dispositional realism where the objects have certain properties and they dispose a proper aesthetic subject to respond in a certain way. So well, whether it's subjective kind of, or objective, how does this get you closer to a god? Um, so, so essentially, from that, um, I would argue for dispositional realism is the be- is a better view to go for, and compared to dispositional realism on a naturalist. What is point, dispositional realism? Uh, so that so that's what I was just saying is like it, it's the view whereby the properties of the object, like a work of art or whatever, they're necessary for grounding aesthetic values, but the role they play is they cause the a proper aesthetic subject to have the appropriate value or response and, and to judge that's beautiful, that's ugly. Okay, and how did you figure out that that response has to have something to do with the God? 
Uh, so that's where my argument comes in. My argument is that, okay, dispositional realism works better than subjectivism or objectivism. And I bring in theistic um, dispositional realism, which I think is better than just dispositional realism. And my reason for that is because it all goes back to who's the proper aesthetic subject. And I'm going to say God is a better aesthetic subject. But isn't that and, just subjective? Like if I said uh, nature is a better um, grounding for that rather than God. Yeah, well, it's, uh, so there are seven features, aesthetic features. So one of them is the fact that we have this non-deference feature that philosophers of aesthetics have noticed, right? So we don't want to defer to any other human being. I, you know, some artsy-fartsy guy says Picasso's beautiful. That's that's garbage, right? I'm not going to defer to anyone. But with this argument, I would say that, well, that avoids that because we ought to defer to God type deal. Yeah, so far, none of this is compelling at all to me. Um, okay. And well, one thing with this, like, couldn't you use this argument uh, with ugly things? Yeah, of course. Dis disvalues are just as real, right? So, right. So, wouldn't that be evidence against God? Uh, no, because I think God thinks certain things are ugly, like uh, heads on pikes. He's disgusted by that. And but if the res okay, so you're saying the response we have to beauty points to God, and the response we have to ugliness points to God. Yeah. So really, all responses point to God. So really, none does. You know, you see, exactly. it's, <laughs> it's, it's comparable to the moral argument, right? Like, what is the grounding for aesthetic values and judgments? Is Okay, so I think that's good for the first little clip there. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I, I guess I'll start on this one and I'll just give um, a little bit of insider behind the scenes info here. Um, on, so in the first place, I don't think I did a good job on presenting the argument for beauty on Pine Creek Doug's show. That said, there's a reason for that uh, because I never presented it. Um, so this is my stupidity, but I didn't even realize I was on the show uh, for like the first 20 minutes or so. Um, because I'm used to every other show I've ever been on, there's always like a prep thing before we go, and then they tell you we're going live. Um, Pine Creek just put me straight in. So again, that was just a miscommunication. Um, but that, yeah, um, I had no idea. I wasn't presenting my argument proper. I, I thought he was just trying to like glean from me a little bit of details mm -hmm. before he went on. So I gotcha. yeah. I'll turn it to, I guess I'll, um, you guys have heard my argument from Beauty Proper where I, I establish what are the seven aesthetic features. And then I basically argue that it's an inference to the best explanation, that theistic dispositional realism um, is the best explanation. But yeah, again, with, with Pine Creek, the thing I wanted to hear from him is I wasn't trying to make my argument. I wanted to hear what he thought about dispositional realism. Is it fruitful ground to introduce this third alternative. It doesn't have to be their objective or their subjective. There's a combination, sorry, a combination view um, where both the aesthetic subject and the uh, properties of the object are both necessary to ground aesthetic values. So yeah, I'll turn it to you guys. Like, What were your guys' thoughts there? I would, uh, first off, like I said, I think I noticed what you're talking about when it's like, you, you know, it was incomplete. You didn't actually give an argument. You know, you're basically kind of defending your position, and, and that's kind of what I noticed. Awesome. Uh, yeah, Tyler? 
Oh, I don't know if David had anything else to add to that. So I, I just have a couple questions, Dell. So you, I had heard you mention in that clip that this view is neither subjective nor objective. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it's both okay. is what it is. Yeah, because like so, so the properties of the object are necessary. So that's the objective part, right? We're appealing to the properties of a sunset or a piece of music, whatever it is. Right. And they play a causal role. So they cause the proper aesthetic agent uh, to respond, to have the proper value response, the experience of significance or worth that's appropriate for those properties and make mm -hmm. that judgment. This is beautiful. This is ugly. Right. So his appealing to ugliness, right? And I think he even caught this at the end there. Whenever you said, no, this would actually be an argument in favor of God's existence because God thinks some things are ugly, right? And so it's not like an opposite effect. The good things point to God where the ugly things point away from God. No, the fact of the matter is that we don't view a sunset just as like a cluster of atoms doing their thing together, that we actually see value and we value this sunset over against something else. I mean, think about it. So goodness and ugliness are a are standard in and of themselves compared to another standard, right? And so because of that, and we're not just viewing these things as equal atoms that are just bouncing off one another. I don't know if atoms do that or not, but it sounds good, right? Mm -hmm. but, but you get the point that I'm making. Instead of yeah. looking at it as a scientific framework only, that there is value in these things, that in and of itself points to God. Am I following? Yeah, exa exactly. Okay. Yeah, because... The God, I argue God is the proper aesthetic subject. He's the one that grounds uh, all aesthetic values or disvalues and aesthetic judgments. It's exactly parallel to the moral argument for God kind of thing, right? And right. Uh, yeah, that's basically uh, the way I, again, if I were making my argument, I should have brought up the PowerPoint slides to show people. But, um, you know, if in my when I was on your show and I did my argument from beauty, I listed yeah. what those seven aesthetic features are. I mentioned one with Pine Creek, which was that non-deference. We don't defer to other human beings, even if there are experts. There's a resistance. This is a, a feature of our aesthetic world. Um, so I think that's better explained. Yeah, but OK, well, we can say you ought to go to God because God's judgments ground what is, in fact, beautiful and stuff. And. You know, there are other things like I think Pine Creek mentions, well, naturalism explains it uh, by naturalism. I interpret him as saying humans, but he probably meant the universe or so. And, and well, that would uh, go against the fact that the aesthetic subject is necessary, right? You can't have evaluations without an evaluator. You can't have values without an experiencer who experiences the qualia of significance um, of that given object. So he failed he would fail to account for several of those aesthetic seven aesthetic features if he just says naturalism it means the universe or something right like that. well it's and correct me if i'm wrong but it it what the the quote that keeps popping up in my mind and i think dawkins is the one that said it i could be wrong on that but there is no good there is no evil just blind pitiless indifference right and so with that being said i think that weighs into what you're trying to say is that in and i don't know if pine creek what is it Dawkins who says that? I don't want to misquote anybody. Yeah, it is Dawkins. Yeah. Okay. So if 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 they're on the same page on that point, then then you can't get that. You can't get that good versus evil even with naturalism on that point. So I don't understand how naturalism can explain that whenever natural and naturalism itself doesn't set the standard to judge whether something is good or evil by. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. maybe I'd have Brute to get fact. that from him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that don't work.
So, <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, yeah. Um, all right. Cool. Well, one last, obviously we didn't get to talk about it that much because it was five minutes and then we were done. But one last thing I did see a comment. Uh, oh, am I frozen? I did see a comment in one of Pine Creek Doug's. Uh, so this was from a philosopher apparently. And he's saying, look, I've, I've done all the, I've read all these philosophy papers. I've never heard of dispositional realism. So I, I, I will just say um, it is in the philosophy of aesthetics. If you look at it, I mean, in the journal of philosophy, uh, in the 1970s, I think, uh, Michael Sloat. Um, and I've linked to his paper on my blog site under the show, The Argument for Beauty. Uh, I mean, this dispositional realism was a view that was started with the atheist, David Hume. Obviously, he had a natural, natural version. And he's, who's the proper aesthetic agent for David Hume? It's the artsy, it's the art experts. That's who we got to defer to. And their judgments are what ground aesthetic values. So, it is there. It, it, this is a, a scholarly view in the peer-reviewed literature. So, yeah, um, I think we can move on to the to the next clip. And this one, it, it's on, again, the historical evidence for the resurrection bit. And once again, for, throughout this entire thing, I was a dummy. I didn't know I was on the show. I, I was just, I thought this was prep. That's uh, what they all say. Well, <laughs> this... Yeah, I'm not lying. I'll, I'll tell you when I realize. <laughs> you can see it in the twinkle of your eye. You're like, oh, man, I'm on a show right now. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, hang on. Oh, you can't Maybe see nothing behind it. the glasses, man. He always. Well, looks that's like true. He looks like the Terminator. Like, I'm ready for anything. <laughs> I won't be back. I'm here now. <laughs> I'm trying to find the place. Pine Creek, get to the chopper. <laughs> Let me share the screen and share this bit about the resurrection with people and share audio okay so here's the bit about the resurrection and sorry let me just check 22 minutes 35 seconds islam is true what? yeah for sure but are they in a position to know that okay great were the early disciples in a position to know yes how do you know that um so that so that's where we get into the historical evidence for the resurrection and uh, i'm kind of um a weirdo in that I don't argue like other Christians. I, I'm a little iffy on the cumulative case thing because um, I don't think that I, I can find a naturalistic explanation for every minimal fact or moderate fact, whatever you want to say, right. except uh, that's equally probable to my mind, except the appearance to the 12. That's the one that. Okay, this uh, is good. I, I like what you just said, uh, that you can find a naturalistic explanation for everything except for the appearance of the 12. How do you know Jesus appeared to the 12? Um, so basically, it's in the First Corinthians 15 creed, which I find to be historical. And uh, based on eyewitness testimony, Paul actually spoke to uh, James and Peter, some of the leaders and stuff like that. So, And I believe that he was a trustworthy source uh someone based on his autobiographical statements i take that so you trust you trust paul yep and in terms of and but the 12 themselves didn't say what they saw paul said what they saw right well you know, paul paul doesn't even tell us what he saw he just says that they that jesus appeared right, right. To, to them with no details uh, so this is kind of why I, I would disagree with my friend Gary or Mike about like a minimal facts is not enough. We need a moderate facts. So, um, but we're agreed that on the facts that 
the 12 actually don't come out and say they saw the risen Jesus. Paul says that. Yeah, Paul says it. Uh, Luke says it as well. I, I find Luke's testimony credible as well. But Paul and um, Luke were in cahoots, right? They knew each other. That, well, yeah, Luke was under the Pauline thing. But I, I think that there is some evidence from Craig Keener that he had independent um, testimony and stuff. But right, do, from, would you agree that none of the 12 disciples actually saw say with their own words that they saw the risen Jesus? Um, certainly nothing that's written down. Is, does that make sense? Like, I, I believe Peter was preaching sermons. Shouldn't this factor that, in your Bayes theorem? Like, if you're, if you're doing analysis and you actually don't have firsthand eyewitness accounts, shouldn't that factor in? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I think it lowers your degree of certainty. And that's where you have to do the assessment of, can we establish that even though this is, you know, Mark, he was an accomplice of Peter and he wrote down, what Peter said, do we have good reasons to think that's true or not? But I want to get back to what you said earlier. You said you can come up with a naturalistic explanation for, I think you said everything but the appearance of Jesus to the 12, yet we don't even know. Can we pause it here for just a second? 12, that Jesus appeared to them. Yep. Okay. So I, because I think this goes off into something else and I want to make a point real quick. Okay. If you do this and, and I want to hear from you guys, and if I'm totally wrong on this, please tell me. But it sounds like Pine Creek would have a problem with any document from historical antiquity. If you don't have the eyewitness accounts, if you don't have the original autographs, and even then he would come up to find with the way, well, they were lying, like he does to go on with Paul here in a little bit. Well, he could be lying, right? And it just seems like you can play this game with any text from antiquity. And might I tell you, as David has reminded us multiple times, the New Testament is the best attested fact in all of history so if we can't it, it's the thing that we use to build models for understanding how we can prove things true that people two thousand years ago wrote right this is how we understand how to how to find facts about what uh i don't know uh homer wrote for example i mean we have more new testament evidence for that the new testament actually happened than homer existed right and so it just seems like if you're going to play this game with the Bible, if you're going to play this game with the standard itself, then you have to be a skeptic on literal all, literally all of history that you haven't been alive for. And I don't think that's the game the atheist wants to play, because if they're not willing to do this with other historical texts, then please don't do it with the Bible. Be consistent just because this has a religious uh, like tones to it. Right. It doesn't separate it from the fact that it's an actual historical document. And it's something, like I said, that we use to build our models for finding out whether other things that have been written down in history are true or not. And so if you're going to be a skeptic with the Bible, you have to be a skeptic to everything that was written in history. And I don't think I, that's not a game I want to play. Yeah, I think your point is absolutely right. Um, and obviously, I, I guess from like what Pine Creek's perspective here, he, Again, he's just he's playing a game. He's trying to get me to, I think, what his goal is. I'm, I'm going to talk about when we finish the get to the 22 minute mark. But yeah. uh, he has a certain agenda, and we haven't gotten to that yet. So I'm I'm going to delay that. But so the answer is yes. I mean, it, it's ridiculous to expect the eyewitnesses themselves to write things down, other or else we just dismiss a historical document. No, that's why we have criteria of authenticity no historian in their right mind would 
argue that way. I mean, the, the only thing we would believe Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Okay. He wrote that, but right. nothing about Alexander. So, so yes, your point is absolutely right. That if you, if he's going to make this argument, then he has to dismiss all, pretty much all of history. Or like, of go ahead. No, I'm uh, I was just going to say, or like Tass to describe, right? Oh, well, Tass to describe was in cahoots with Tass. Well, of course he was. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean what he wrote was untrue. It, it just seems fallacious to me. And, and Ethan, I would love to hear why you disagree uh, with what I'm saying there. But David, any thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, what Dale just said really is ingraining itself into me. It sounds like this is leading to somewhere that is uh, agenda specific. It's uh, I, I'm not going to like I, I hate trying to say, look, I know the mind of these people and stuff because I don't I don't know what's going on in, in Pine Creek's mind and his heart. I don't know. But uh, I do see where Dale's coming from, that this seems like it's it's a certain line of questioning that's not taking into consideration the entirety of the argument, right? So Dale said, okay, look, uh, this is Dale's given a summary of things that come from a line of argumentation that is a cohesive line of argumentation, which actually uh, involves – uh, historicity it has involves historians and so forth so that's what i see going on here is that's why i haven't said much because i want to kind of see how it concludes again i know i've already watched this twice but i, I you know it's been yeah. a busy week so but yeah so so I'll, I'll play the rest of it and, and just to be clear david when i'm saying he has an agenda i'm not saying necessarily that it's nefarious i'm i'm just saying He's trying to lead me to make a point, a substantive, a substantive point as he sees it, and that's fine. So, all right, so let's let's play it and let's uh, see what that what that is. Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's written down. Yeah, is that well? What else? What else would we have besides historical? Yeah, that's exactly what we would have, right? Like they're, the claim that we have to establish is that what's written down is pre accurately preserving. What so what's say. the naturalistic explanation for Paul saying that the 12 saw Jesus, but maybe they really they didn't? What's the naturalistic? Um, so again, he spoke to them uh, personally and got details from them. Um, and I don't think he would be misreported. No, but let's say, let's say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But Paul said that Jesus appeared after he died, he rose and appeared to the 12. Let's say that's false. What's the natural explanation to explain why Paul wrote that? Um, okay, so, so Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The apostles didn't see him, but Paul just reports it. Um, yeah. Well, obviously, he was just lying for some reason. There you reason. go. Fact. He just lied. Why would he do that? What's the natural ex explanation for why Paul might lie? And I'm not saying for now that he did, but let's just like hypothesize together. Why would a person lie about something like that? Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be lying. Maybe he was deluded in some way yeah, or something. Maybe there, there can be any number of reasons. Maybe he was honestly people, mistaken. Yeah, um, some people lie. Maybe for he wasn't. Reasons, um, from, you know, like financial gain or maybe he, he all right so i think that that's good enough you guys get the his point was established here right so basically what is he doing um and i i thought it was my fault um i think what he has in his mind is 
I can't even come up with a possible naturalistic explanation to explain it, right? So first of all, he gave me certain givens. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to play ball. So Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's the fact. That's the counterfactual. Okay, cool. And the the 12, they didn't see the risen Jesus. They didn't claim a risen Jesus. Why would Paul write that in his thing? And I just, I'm like, he was lying. That's a possible historical explanation that's plausible, right? To explain given those facts. But the thing that, the mistake that I think Pine Creek's making here is he didn't hear this key word. It, it's not enough to have just a possible or even a plausible historical explanation. Possibilities are not probabilities. And what I said for the appearance of the 12, I can't think of a naturalistic explanation that is equally probable or more probable than supposing, you know, Jesus really appeared to them and it risen from the dead. That's so that's what Pine Creek needs to do. He doesn't need me to just okay, let me get you to say a possibility. And then, well, see, I gave you a naturalistic explanation. No, you have to give me minimally an equally probable one. And given the actual facts we have, it's improbable that Paul lied. Over to you guys. David? No, I couldn't, I couldn't just, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think you, you, you hit it right on the head and, I mean, I, there's really nothing I can add to that. You know, um, I, like I said, I think the, the, the entire thing was, was leading to, to that, you know what I mean? Um, the whole line of questioning. And again, it's, I think it was a little disingenuous. So that's just my take there, Tyler. What do no, you I agree. I agree because yeah. I mean, if you look at it and yes, I'm going to go ahead and say it for everyone in the back. I'm assuming the Bible is true at this point, right? But if you look at everything Paul gave up, I don't see any reason for him to lie. We do things, and I've come to this conclusion based on our conversations with Colton Carlson, that we do things because of reasons, whether good or bad, right? And I think the reason that Paul would do this, like truthfully, so much more outweighs whether he would be false about this or, or, or trying to deceive people about this. I mean, not only if he, I'll put it like this, the only way Paul is deceiving people is if he himself is deceived. That, that that's my two cents. Yeah. And you know, I mean, what, what, what else can, should we conclude that what's coming out of the first century? We're getting uh, um, all these reports about this, nazarene preacher right we're getting uh gospel stories we're getting uh early epistles we're getting uh enemy attestation and what do we conclude you know i mean what are we supposed to conclude you I know mean, and it's, it's never good enough it's crazy. never good enough you have all the, the all the requirements and ethan what i meant earlier that the that the bible was the standard i get that some scholars that uh believe there there's some non-factual things about the Bible. I, I understand that. What I meant was, is that the we have more manuscripts for the Bible than any piece of an ancient antiquity, like any document. We have the Bible, right? We have the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, and not only that, but in Latin and in a, a whole bunch of other different languages. And so what I meant by the standard was, is that it seems to me, and I could be wrong on this, so please correct me if I am, is that whenever textual critics how they formulate models to find out whether or not the, the things that are written in history are true or false or, or how, however they're articulated or whatever. What I mean is they use the Bible to come up with those things, right? Because it is the best 
It is the most well-attested uh, document. And now that seems logical to me. I could be wrong. So please correct me if I am. But like I said, I'll, I'll just be repeating myself at this point. But anyway, Dale, what do you, what do you think? Oh, yeah. No, I, I think I... Yeah, I think you nailed it. Yeah, we, we do have to get into the these issues of historicity. Do we have reasons to believe or be warranted in thinking that what these later written texts are saying is actually historical? That's what the debate is, right? Uh, possibilities are cheap. Um, you know, yeah. but they're not probabilities, and that's what historians deal in. So that's if you want if you want to take away my belief in the appearance of the 12 pine creek you have to give me an equally probable or a more probable explanation you can't just say well it's possible he lied yeah so what it's it's possible the sky could be red I don't, there's a logically possible world where the sky's red possibilities are cheap i don't care um yeah so like, let me let me just jump in because tyler is mentioning in the comments that people uh, don't come to the conclusion. Oh, hold on. Let me, let me read it. But that doesn't get you to the conclusion that the contents are true or historical. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we have that in the, the New Testament, we have more manuscripts, which you agreed with. Right. So what we have is a better data pool to reference, to compare these things with other documents to see how they line up with each other. That's all I'm saying. I'm not making a claim that the Bible's true. Not right now. I believe that, but that's not the claim I'm making. And it seems like that's what you guys are misunderstanding. So I apologize if I'm not being clear, but I just wanted to clear that up. And one thing I'll say, because I'm handling all the screens, um, I'll, I'll leave it to you. Again, I can't see any of the comments. So I'll, I'll right. leave it to you guys. If there's something relevant, you guys choose to bring it up and, and ask me. But for now, I, I think um, that's it for that one. Um, yeah. so, so now we're going to start getting into it. Now I realize I'm on the show. I'm no longer a dummy and uh, I'm answering as though I, I you know, would on the show. So this is about the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. This this is what Pine Creek Doug came on our show to ask about. Uh, asked me specifically about, uh, you know, about how it works and that sort of thing. So uh, I've got two four minute clips here. So let's watch the first one and that'll be till... 28. Okay, so let me share my screen. All right. Oh, son of a... Okay, sorry, hang on. Okay, so it's already clicked. Beautiful. There you guys go. Let's have a listen. Uh, Dell, we can't hear it, or I can't hear it. David Russell, can you hear it? Nope. Turn on the sound, my friend. I clicked this stupid thing. All right. Yeah, it's um, not muted. All right. Present. Share screen. It. Share tab audio. Oh, okay. Hang on. There we go. Does hear it? You hear it? It's feeling. Yes. The sensation yep. okay. that it was true. So talking about more. Uh, what would you say to that? Right. That, is that a good way to come? Is that a good epistemology? Um, so if, if true, of course it is, because you're you're saying they're exactly mirroring what I what I'm saying, right? Yeah. But it comes down for me, judging as an outsider, I'm not privy to whether it's actually true or not that they're having this subjective warrant um so 
that's the difference. But they I, tell you, I, they tell you that they are having this warrant. They're they're having this sensation that the Book of Mormon's true. You listen to them speak, and mm -hmm. you say to yourself, "A, yes, this is a good way to say that the Book of Mormon's true," or "B, no, this is not a good way to say the Book of Mormon's true." Where do you lie? Okay, and just so now, you're asking me as a Christian who ha already has something. Or are you saying from a total neutral observer standpoint, what do I do with their testimony? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great question. From what perspective? Well, let's say, um, say my perspective, okay. but you're going to speak on my behalf now. Yeah. So, so here, so obviously, you have no evidence of your own against the proposition that they're testifying to you. So in the epistemology of testimony, there are two fundamental perspectives on how we treat it, right? So the first is a reductionist stance. So that's kind of, I don't believe Can you answer the question first and then explain it? So would you sure. say that is a good way to come to know that the Book of Mormon is true or a bad way? From your perspective, it's a bad way. Okay, now answer for yourself. From your perspective, is it a good way or a bad way? It's an even worse way. Okay, so for both of us, it's bad. Yeah. But yet they're using the same method as you? Uh, well, they're claiming to use the same method, right? Oh, so you don't believe them? No. <laughs> uh, because in, in my case, speaking for me, I have actual evidence that I'm privy to that says they're wrong. I've got the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Okay. I am privy but to But what if they were here right now and said, I have evidence, proof, that what you, your inner testimony of the Holy Spirit is wrong because they have their Holy Spirit or their witness. What would you say? I would just say, well, that's a great claim, but that isn't evidence that I'm privy to. So unless you, if you want to change my mind, you have to present me uh, with objective evidence and maybe that might overwhelm. You mean something the, other than the Holy Spirit? Yeah, or for them, something other than this burning in the bosom. That no, but for you, do you need to provide something external to the Holy Spirit? If I want to convince them, of course. No, my, let's my say if you want to convince yourself, do you need something external to the Holy Spirit? I don't, you don't, it's not necessary that you need objective evidence. So I could have 100% degree of knowledge based on the inner witness of the Holy Spirit and throw away all the objective evidences. Shroud okay, now what stuff. if the Mormon says, I don't need anything else. I don't need objective external evidence. I got my burning in the bosom. And yeah, well, I, I would just say that again, that's, am I trying to persuade them that they're wrong? No, they're they're saying to you that you're wrong, mm -hmm. that you're, you're deluded, and that you're saying you have this inner testimony of the Holy Spirit, but you're mistaken. And uh, they have the real census divinitatis to say the Book of Mormon's truth, the true gospel. Well, on what basis would you say, oh, that's bogus? So on the basis that I lack knowledge by acquaintance that what they're claiming is true. The burning in the bosom, I have no evidence that I'm conscious of showing that they do have this uh, warranted true belief that Mormonism is true. Okay, so I, th I think that is good for the first part. Um, I have a second clip on the inner witness, but let's kind of respond to to that. So yeah. basically, I guess my response is like Doug is is not getting it here. He he doesn't understand this epistemology. 
Yeah, wow. and I was going to say, Dale, hold on. Um, before we go any further, I want you to explain to the audience, uh, keep it short, keep it simple, um, but there is a disconnect, and I don't think he understands epistemology and the way all this works and how you know, even scholarship goes about these certain things, right? I mean, you just finished a master's degree in philosophy. So uh, <laughs> let's explain, let's explain, let's explain a little bit about warranted beliefs and so forth. Let's kind of give it like a, a maybe a, a two minute history or something. <laughs> you know, uh, just explain what warranted properly basic beliefs, just stuff like that, so that the audience can know also where you're coming from and how this fits into a bigger puzzle than what you're being questioned on. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So, so it, two minutes. Um, so, uh, yeah, basically I take the view uh, just along with Elvin planting it that knowledge, what is that? It is a warranted true belief, right? So true belief, most people will know what that is, but what does it mean to be warranted? And this is a reliableist epistemic criterion. So it, it just says, look, you have to have the, True belief has to be produced by faculties functioning properly, uh, so they're not malfunctioning or something like that, in a suitable environment for those faculties, whereby those faculties are designed, quote-unquote designed, to produce true beliefs. Um, if you've got those factors, then you've got warrant for your belief and, and knowledge um type deal so that's what a warranted true belief is now how do we gain warranted true beliefs well principally um there are two primary ways that are relevant for this discussion so the first is something we're all aware of right so we we derive at not our knowledge propositionally so you know premise one uh all men are mortal premise two socrates is immortal therefore uh, socrates is a man therefore socrates is mortal so, you know, that's what I call derivative knowledge in the, in the thing or propositional knowledge. But we can also uh, gain things um, in a properly basic way. So it's an immediate knowledge um, that we gain. It, it's, it's not derived from think other beliefs that we have or derived from other knowledge that we have. We're not making an inference. It's, it's just God immediately reveals the truth or... If we see a red apple in front of us, redness, uh, the sensation of redness appears before us and we instantly and immediately, I'm seeing red um, or that's a red apple kind of thing. That's a properly basic belief. It, it doesn't depend on any other prior beliefs or anything. It's an immediate direct um, knowledge that we gain from that. So experiential knowledge. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, like, well, well, obviously, a properly basic belief is is propositional in nature. But we, the way I say that it works is whenever the criteria for warranted true beliefs are fulfilled in Alvin Plantinga's definition, mm -hmm. a byproduct of that is that it produces something where knowledge by acquaintance. We are acquainted with the qualia of being warranted. So we have two, we have the propositional knowledge in the form of the properly basic belief, and we have knowledge that we're warranted in the form of knowledge by acquaintance. Um, so let me ask you this, Dale, going back to what was said on Pine Creek's episode, would it be fair to say what, what you were trying to, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but 
because you have not experienced what the Mormons call the burning in the bosom, that war, this is where I'm going to get a little sticky. That does not give you, because you haven't experienced it, warranted uh, belief in that proposition. Is that fair to say or not? Not so, so much. So the fundamental difference that I was trying to get through to him, and it's in my case, I have this, I have access to this byproduct, this knowledge by acquaintance mm -hmm. that I'm warranted with respect to this belief that Christianity is true or, you know, God exists, whatever the properly basic belief is. So I've got knowledge by acquaintance. This is additional evidence that I'm privy to. With the case of the Mormon just simply claiming, oh yeah, oh yeah, me too. I, I've got the same thing. Warrant, yeah, whatever you say, I, I've got that. But it's about Mormonism is true, so it contradicts you. Mm -hmm. I don't have acts, I don't have knowledge by acquaintance that they're the proposition Mormon Mormonism is true is true. All I have is testimonial evidence from them. And you have to assess testimonial evidence. And I was getting into reductionism versus non-reductionism. He interrupted that. But the key point here is that Doug is making the false assumption that testimonial evidence is, is equally significant as actual knowledge by acquaintance that I'm right about Christianity. It's not. Knowledge by acquaintance destroys mere testimonial evidence about from a burning in a bosom or religious claims. I mean, we have tons of defeaters that, that yeah. In that kind of evidence so that's the mistake the fundamental mistake and that's why i don't care what the mormon claims claims are cheap um that makes sense yeah no i agree and i i guess you know and maybe david was going to say the same thing but just a quick response from me and, and it seems just so blatant blatantly obvious to me and that this is how i have you know interacted with mormons but i say guys look you hold the scripture, what we what we call the Old and New Testament, right? Excluding the Book of Mormon for right now, because the Book of Mormon is what we're examining, right? But the two contradict each other. I mean, they do. And and now we could get into all that, but just off the top, on a surface level, they contradict each other. And so if we want to do a show about that later on, I would be totally up for that. But that's the way just kind of hearing what you and Pine Creek uh, that might have been what I, I would have said differently. Now, I'm sure he would have asked me, well, how can you give me an example? And I would have been glad to do that, right? But just fundamentally on the basis of it, that's where I would start with any Mormon. All right, let's compare your propositions to my propositions. Let's compare your claims to mine claims because the two differ and therefore the two cannot be true if they contradict each other. So let's go to the source. Let's go to the authority. And then that's where I would start with scripture. David? Um, yeah, it's just kind of hard to pinpoint this type of questioning and stuff like that. It's just kind of hard to s see where he's going with it. You know what I mean? I don't, it, it seems like he's just leading Dale along. Uh, I hate to say it, but I, I'm almost at the point where like, I'm agreeing with Dale that there's this agenda <laughs> that's involved. I told Dale I was going to try to play devil's advocate, but I can't. <laughs> I, I was so depressed with the show and it seemed like you're on this side, but yeah, you're seeing the, you're seeing. I, I, I am. It, so there's a lot more to these arguments. There's a lot more to understanding, uh, uh, warranted true belief and stuff like that, that it's, there's, there's no credit for that. There's, there's that that's being displayed. There's no understanding of okay, this is part of a bigger 
argument. It's like, let me see what I can get you on. And that's where I'm starting to, uh, to see what Dale's talking about here. Yeah. Um, that I didn't catch when I, when I looked at this the first time, I was just like, cause I, I, to me, when you're listening to this alone by yourself, I'm already taking co- into consideration the entirety of the argument, you know, where Dale's coming from. So I'm putting myself in his shoes saying, okay, well, he's given these answers and this and that. I'm not really focusing on Doug. I'm, I was focusing on giving Dale a critique on whether his answers were right or not, you know. But now, you know, that we're playing, you know, seeing what Pine Creek's doing, I, I see where Dale's coming from, even though, you know, I still might have some issues with some of the some of the stuff, but we'll uh, but yeah, <laughs> we'll get to that. Yep. But yeah, I can't, dude. I and I can't offer more than what Dale's already offered, and what you you just said, Tyler. I it's you're right on. You're you you're picking up on it too. You know what I mean? Well, so it's kind of like you know, there's a cumulative case uh, to be made when you're studying these things. You know, and and, and that's not. It's like that's getting cut out. You know what I mean? And it seems like that's the mark of somebody guiding a question to a certain agenda or a certain goal. But anyways, go ahead. Gotcha. Yeah. So so here's where I hammer home the, the point. And quite frankly, the discussion should have been over and it wasn't. But I give him the analogy about the external world. And mm-hmm. he just give, grants me everything. So, like, okay, let's let's let him play it in his own words first, just so I'm not. While you're bringing while you're bringing that up, Dale, I want to answer a question for the vulture here. He says, "If you don't believe the Bible is true, then what?" Well, if you mean by that not at all, like nothing in the Bible is true, then you're neither a Mormon or a Christian at that point. And so the conversation, I wouldn't go to Scripture to show how the Scripture is reliable, right, in and of itself. And so we're having a completely different conversation about that. Maybe whenever we do the solo Scripture, actually, matter of fact, uh, vulture. We're going to be doing a couple episodes on Sola Scriptura uh, in not too long from now. So very, very recent, maybe even next week, David. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that starts the open mic and anybody anybody's allowed to join. So, yeah, um, I'll even kick myself off to let other people talk. (laughs) Right. If we get 10, then David and I can bounce and then uh, and then you guys can finish the conversation. And we we will run tech for you until it's over and we'll come back in when people, you know, leave and stuff like that. So, right. So, Vulture, all I'm trying to say is. One, given the conversation that we're having right now, that in and of itself would be a completely different conversation. And so you might want to check out the episode that we're going to do next Friday, starting at 7 p.m. Uh, to uh, right here on Faith Unaltered. And I, Dale, are you joining that? Or are we going to be broadcasting that to Real Seekers as well? I think we should. Which, Just my opinion. Uh, so uh, I'm so sorry I wasn't listening. Like, what? What's the show? I'm I'm in no matter what. Yeah, if you got what's Solo the show? Script. Solo Scriptura open mic. So basically, the the main topic is Solo Scriptura. But if we get done with that, we can talk about different stuff uh, that, that okay. either applies to that or don't. And yep. so I'm just inviting Vulture to to join us either uh, on screen if he wants to join us like live with us like you are now, or if he wants to just chill out in the comic session. Either way, but that would be a conversation more uh, for that time uh, than it is right now. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yep, I, I'm in and happy to. I've spoken to David Aston private, so I'm happy to have him on the show. Honestly, guys, I I want to run something by you real quick. I genuinely think every time we do a Faith Unaltered episode, we should broadcast it to Real Seekers as well. Maybe we can talk about that later, like off air. But I've been having that thought, and I think it's a good idea. So let just think about it for right now. 
and then we can talk about it after the show. But Dell, go ahead. Go ahead, brother. All right, cool. So, okay, so here's the clip. I'm I'm giving him an analogy, and he basically, without even realizing it, concedes the whole debate to me and my the point to me all the time, right? So, you know, for for you guys are hearing that first of all. Yes. Yes. Okay. Sounds good. We can look at other examples. Do you believe that there is an external world? Yeah. Do you know that there's an external world in any? Depending on the definition of no, I'd say yes. Great, great. And would it bother you if I came and said no? Well, I've got a, I've got my properly basic belief that there isn't an external world. Does that? No, it doesn't do bother anything me. To you? I think you're nuts, but. Okay, and <laughs> I would say that again. You, would you admit with the external world belief that there's there's nothing in terms of derivative knowledge that you can you can't appeal to sense data or something because it's all a part right of the system right right because it, so in other words but how does this relate you, to the mormon because the way that you're knowing is in a properly basic way so so this is another example so you're supporting of, the mormon right now and saying that they're warranted no I, i'm saying that you are warranted and believing that the world is external to give you an example of how how it works but is the, the mormon world. warranted in believing that the book of mormon okay so so you guys kind of get that I, I can stop it to save time here but that example just destroyed doug so in this example doug's belief in the external world is analogous to me as the christian with the inner witness of the holy spirit he knows in a properly basic way he admitted he wasn't deriving it based on other beliefs or other knowledge that he has and, and inferring the truth of that so it's a properly basic belief for him and it's a warranted true belief. And if I said, okay, if I came up to him, I'm analogous as the Mormon and said, no, 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 but I'm testifying to you that I know there is no external world. And I know that in a properly basic way. I'm, it's a warranted true belief. All, all the conditions you claim, I've got that too for the contradictory proposition. What does uh, good old Dougie say? He says, I don't care. You're nuts. That's the proper response. Yes. Um, you should be look he doug in this case is privy to it through knowledge by acquaintance he knows he is warranted that uh in his properly basic belief about the external world it doesn't matter what contradictory testimonial evidence he gets or at the or at the very least even if he counts that it's so insignificant compared to his knowledge by acquaintance to the contrary that he dismisses the testimonial evidence that is exactly the same that I'm doing as the Christian when I'm presented with the testimonial evidence of the Mormon. It's not good enough. Um, yeah, over to you guys. David, go ahead, bro. I don't want to. I don't want to stomp your. No, fire I out, mean, I, I think that that this is probably my favorite part where where you did. Uh, uh, you, you got him here. I think you really did. But is, is this the part you you said that he called you nuts? Yeah, but you're you're muted, so you can you're keep muted, talking. Bub. But it's not; no one hears you. <laughs> Bag of milk. This isn't where he calls me nuts, but he's he's saying he would call the person who says there's no external world nuts. Okay, I, I, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, no, I hear you, I, I, and I think again, I I think you 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 said it right. So, I mean, if you're following Plantinga's whole uh, idea of warrant and stuff like that, um, that epistemology, then absolutely, I think you you. And then, like I said, I think this is the part where you got him the best. So that's pretty much it, man. I don't have much to comment on when it comes to that, but it, it I think you totally did a great did. job. That, there, you're you're, <laughs> no you're leaving. You're leaving. You're leaving 
you're 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 leaving no room to get out of on that. You know, you you uh, you got you, that's why I think that that part was probably like one of my favorites. It's it's exactly analogous. And and the thing I've heard, you know, from David Johnson on Skeptics and Seekers, I t- I spoke to him about this, and he he was trying to say, yeah, but they're totally disanalogous because one's about religious beliefs and the other is about the external world. No, that doesn't matter. That's irrelevant, right? Remember Colton Carlson taught, teaching us about how analogy analogies work. They don't have to be exactly the same in every respect, just in the respect right. that you're trying to prove. And the propositional content of these properly basic beliefs is irrelevant to the the point I'm making about how we're warranted and stuff. So, so yeah. let me just let me just ask this then, real quick. The minute that you ask Pine Creek. Why? Why do you believe the world is external? And he starts giving reasons. It's actually the exact same whenever we say something like, well, we have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. The beliefs for or, or the reasons for those beliefs are warranted. And it's like you're actually arguing with us on this sense. Is, is that closer? The, the only thing, again, he's not giving, he can't give reasons for it, right? Because that's derivative knowledge, but he just knows okay. in a properly basic way. Okay. And he can't show that to me or demonstrate it to me because that's his subjective, properly basic belief. And, okay. and his, yeah, knowledge by acquaintance. So No, fair right. enough. All right, Interesting. Cool. Is that is that it on that part? Yeah, that's I don't it. have anything else to add. All right. Yeah, and Dale, just real quick for the audience's sake, show can you tell them how defeaters come into play on this? Because we haven't, I, I don't think we spent enough time on the records. whole no, on the idea of defeaters and and how they play a role in this and and uh, you know this whole system. Yeah, so so in terms of um, with properly basic beliefs and uh, in relation to a warranted true belief. Um, I'm kind of like the Tim and Lydia McGrew. So when we when we hold that in the 100% degree, like for example, the proposition one plus one equals two, it's impossible for me to be wrong. I have infallible knowledge. Uh, I don't care what any other, unless you can present something again in 100% degree of warrant, in which case the logical law of non-contradiction is false and my head will explode. Um, that That's not possible, right? So um, I just ignore it. But... In the case of Christianity, I don't have 100% knowledge that Christianity is true. And it, so in that case, it's possible that some defeaters might come in, e- either in the form of, uh, you know, like objective evidences. Maybe the, they'll prove to me, look, Mormon, Mormonism is true. Here's proof that he did a miracle. Or, you know, so they present me with some kind of source of warrant, whatever that is, that, that contradicts the source of warrant I have from the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, but to a higher degree, then that would defeat my original belief that Christianity is true. Um, So that's where the role of defeaters comes in with respect to the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, One thing I would also add, because I got interrupted and and Caleb Jackson totally misunderstood when I was talking about the epistemology of testimony, that there are defeaters for testimony as well. And there's the reductionist stance, right? So that's where before, before you believe testimony, you need positive reasons to believe it. I disagree with that. Um, I take more of the view of an, a non-reductionist whereby we automatically believe testimony. And I think like a credulity thing, right? Uh, the principle of testimony is what Swinburne yeah. would call it. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's not from Swinburne. There, there are proofs that this is how human beings operate. But... 
that doesn't mean I'm just gullible and believing every miracle or virgin birth thing like like what Caleb and you guys were saying on the last show because of the role of defeaters, right? So with certain types of testimony, there are inherent defeaters that come along attached with religious testimony and stuff. We know um, David Hume prevents some that people lie all the time or they're often confused and stuff like that. And, and there are defeaters whereby we need to, it's not a question of just believing the testimony. We need to come up with reasons to say that those are not undefeated before we believe them. Um, I don't know if that made sense, but the, the no, you, you got it right. I think, yeah, you got it right. Cool. At least from, from my, my perspective, I, I'm, I'm with you. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, now we get into, if everyone's agreed, I can move on to the next topic segment. Before we do, I just go ahead and pull it up, Dale. I just want to encourage people, uh, our listeners, that if you are not subscribed to Faith Unaltered or Real Seekers, please do us a huge, huge favor and hit that big red button. Also, if you like this content, please leave us a thumbs up and uh, leave a comment. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know if you have any questions. We are taking uh, audience questions. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Cool. So so this one is uh, a personal note. And um it's an argument from stupidity I, I i'm sorry to say so no no disrespect to you pine creek but it just annoys me because it's really dumb but it it's basically getting into my personal background and he thinks he's oh scoring, man he thinks he's scoring a point and i'm going to be playing my funny little clip for this one but uh okay is this the funny clip well so not this part but let, okay. let's first hear what he has to say okay, okay. did in the base room what did it come out as 53.14 like okay well i've got to follow the evidence so i believe this is true and that's kind of what changed that day i didn't have a spiritual experience that day if... okay that so it was very uh intellectual it wasn't the an internal thing it was yeah i remember you weren't, uh, desperate. You, weren't uh you didn't go through any pain or suffering tragedy nothing like that uh no not at that time um i like from I did, the time you were you left the during that time where you were out of christianity was there any like major problems in your life i would say can so. i pause it dale an emotional aspect going um around just real quick i just want to say one thing you don't become a christian because you're going through pain or suffering matter of fact if you are a christian you're promised pain and suffering so i just wanted to add that in there but go ahead Okay. All right. It's, it's this one is just a three minute one. So that time yeah. when I left one more minute or so. Um, but again, ultimately it was all intellectual, I think. So but what were these factors? Like, because to me, this is a naturalistic explanation for this internal warrant that you think you have. If you're mm -hmm. suffering in some way and you can get relief from this belief and you, but you can't, force yourself to believe it right so you got to justify it somehow and so then you start working on this base theorem thing this is what my hypothesis is what happened to you so is was there anything in your life like you know that you, you break up with your girlfriend or wife or drugs or death or bankruptcy anything like that um yeah so so i don't go into my personal details but the answer is yes there, there was something along see those and lines. i i i have not looked you up i haven't seen your first testimony but i've done this long enough to know that i can ask that question and with a high degree of confidence get a positive answer for it because in my experience i'm, I'm just going to be direct with you normal content 
peaceful people who are convinced Christianity is not true just don't go back into it. They're okay, so there's the clip. Uh, this is just sheer stupidity, um, I'm, I'm sorry to say. And um, I'm just going to have to respond. So, so number one, think about what he's not listening to me, right? He's trying to get his own established agenda, but it actually proves the opposite. Because what I said is that I, I went through some emotional stuff or whatever. I'm not, again, I don't get into personal details and stuff. But yeah, I was I was struggling for a little bit. And what was the result of that? I lost my faith. I became an agnostic. So if his point stands, then he proves that agnostics and atheists are not intellectual. They're the emotional, only people who are depressed or upset or going through emotional stuff become atheists. It's the end. It was only once after the six month period. And I'll say it here kind of thing. I didn't say it on the thing, but William Lane Craig saved my life. Um, it was through learning about Molinism, literally, as, as weird as that sounds, that saved my life from, from you know, like uh, considering suicide. I, I told my parents, I'm like, I'm going to wait a year if things don't get, if things don't improve, um, then I'm, I'm seriously considering it um, and stuff like that, right? Six months at once, the emotional stuff started dying down and I was starting to get, uh, starting to think rationally. And I learned about Molinism. I realized I, I did really deep down believe in God the whole time. That is the intellectual position. And I placed my faith in general theism at that time. And that gave me my purpose in life to do my religious research. Now, if you want to say the emotion things, well, that caused me to be an agnostic, not to become a theist. And it's sure as heck, had nothing to do with my converting to Christianity eight years after the fact. Uh, that was pure intellectualism. And I can show you shows where I'm with Gary Habermas. He's known me for since 2010. He knows my brother um, and and stuff. He will, he will attest. I'll show you the show where he says, look, I was purely intellectual. That I had intellectual doubts at that point when I came to Gary. Emotions played no role um for years prior to my conversion and certainly not at, at the moment of my conversion so yeah if emotions caused me to do anything it caused me to be an agnostic not a theist and not a christian you know and i'll just say this dale i was talking to you and i was telling you about my testimony and and i think the fact of the matter is that who does jesus accept i mean it's just you you look at the scriptures and who in the world did he set down to you with? It was the broken people. It was the sinners, right? And and so, granted, I for me, I think emotions did have uh, a big role. I, I won't even say no; nah, they didn't play you know any role at all. No, I, I think they had a big role in it. And at the same time, the evidence was there as well. And so, you know, I, I don't get the argument. I mean, I'm I, I would be willing to say that over fifty percent of the people. Uh, and I'm being generous there. I was getting ready to say 99%, but I won't go that high. I won't be that cocky. But but man, people Christians that come to Jesus, they're broken, you know. And and it and it's not. And let me just let me just take this time to to give a little gospel message for for our listeners and anybody that listens after the fact. You know, if you're coming to Jesus to, so that He will give you stuff, or, or if you're if you're coming to Jesus so that He will take away pain and suffering in your life. Man, that's the wrong reasons. You don't come to Jesus uh, be, because you're hurting that your girlfriend dumped you or, or something silly like that. Man, you come to Jesus to be set free from sin. Okay, and and, and it's not, it's it doesn't happen all at once. 
bro, I'm still a sinner, right? Like I still have major, major problems in my life that even as a matter of fact, sometimes keep me up in bed at night crying myself to sleep. Like I still do that over some of these things. So it's not because, you know, oh God, I'm going to be a good boy now. I'm going to believe in you and you're going to take away all this stuff. That is not Christianity. And for anybody that thinks it is, it's a watered down. Uh, no, it's not a watered down version. It's not Christianity at all. Okay. We come to Jesus to be set free from sin. We come to Jesus because he is God. He is Lord of our lives. You know, it's not a give and take relationship. Oh, I come to Jesus and he gives me eternity. That's a benefit of it. But you come to Jesus because you acknowledge that he is God. He's the one that created you and he's the one that deserves your worship. Period. In the subject. David. <laughs> I was a joke. <laughs> nah, you're, you're right, man. You're right. You're right. I hear you. Um, you know, count the cost, right? And then we pick up our cross. It's a high one. Follow him. All right. Yep. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, again, contentment, I want to add something to this because I think this is where I can add something to because you guys have already said a lot. So, uh, contentment doesn't discriminate. Uh, either is apathy. Um, when you're content, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, you're probably going to stay within that contentment bubble. That's just the way we are. Okay, and apathy, apathy can make you just not care about anything. So it doesn't allow, and if you have a contentful life as an apathetic person, you're probably not going to get off the couch. You know, so I it, the, the truth is, is that whether you're content in whatever worldview you're holding, you're probably not going to change, you know, unless you care about truth. And you go seek it. And whatever side of the fence you fall on at that point, I mean, that's journey independent, right? I mean, that's uh, that's dependent upon uh, the person's journey, I mean. You know, um, maybe you didn't look at the evidence and you still came to the wrong conclusion. Or you did look at the evidence and you came to the right conclusion. But my whole point is, is that usually when people are content, because God knows that there is a lot of emotivism in this world there is a lot of sensationalism in this world and some people leave the faith in a sensational way or because of an emotional response or what god's not doing for them or what god is doing for them they they uh uh you know or they or he hasn't abandoned the or he, they think he you know they've been abandoned by god or or they've done whatever or you they've been hurt by the church you know i mean there's so many different emotional things that can come into play when it comes to these type of decisions that we make and these choices that we make and these experiences we have uh that you know they do play into that so what i'm saying is that contentment contentment doesn't discriminate upon your worldview and as people um, they can, we can just stay in that bubble for years and years, you know? Um, so I, I don't buy that response. I do understand that people have been hurt. I do understand that people have gone through some stuff and that's why they end up leaving or deconverting or the opposite. Like Dale was saying, it, it, you know, well, yeah, he deconverted and then there's other people that go through something and they convert, you know? So that it's really not an argument. It's not a good argument. 
Um, even though there is that psychological theory at play, and I can understand why Pine Creek went there because you know he's trying to identify Dale's motive. So yeah. that's that's all yeah. I would have to say about it. It would be a good yeah. argument if you're like asking somebody about drugs. Well, why did you start doing drugs? Did you have some pain in your life? Because that's the reason I started doing drugs, right? But that's a completely different category than go, coming to gr drugs and coming to Jesus is two completely different things. And and you don't, I don't think you have the same motives for doing one or the other, but anyway, Dale. Yeah. I'll, I'll just finish off with, with this, this uh, topic segment, because again, I, I don't think it's a substantive argument, but yeah. Um, again, yeah. With Molinism uh, at the time that, that solved it. Not only was it, I, what I required was not only an emotionally comforting, uh, solution, um, but an intellectually satisfying one. And Molinism provided that. So, and once I realized that I started thinking and, and realizing, yeah, I, I really did believe in God the whole time. I was never a true agnostic, but yeah. the, the point is Pine Creek is trying to say, this is all about uh, being emo only someone who's emotionally distraught or whatever could ever believe in Christianity. And that's, my belief in Christianity had nothing to do with it. It was eight years later. Uh, emotions had nothing to do with it. And even with my belief in God, again, when I was feeling the worst, that's when I became an agnostic. That's what caused me to lose my faith. So if we want to reason in this stupid way, then it backfires on the atheist, not the Christian. So, yeah. Uh, so basically, here's what I have. Uh, we caught uh, Pine Creek. Um when he when he realized he made this mistake and this is what he had to say hey oh, no, Del, yeah. real quick oh, did you oops <laughs> oops okay oops. Yeah, oops oh my god so i'm the problem oh whoops whoopsie please tell me you heard, all, you heard that guys right yeah yeah we got it um, hey, ahead, Tyler, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your, your moment. Uh, did you post the, uh, the, the Pine Creek in, in your episode to, uh, real seekers? Yes. Can I, I find that video there? Okay. I told, uh, biblical apologetics that we're going to post that in the description. So BA, if you want to either right after this, go to real seekers YouTube channel and it's there. Or if you want to wait for us to post it in the description of our, uh, episode that we're doing now we can do that and then upload it here after the episode so either way either way what's he talking about the, the he, show with pine creek or yeah he said that he missed the show that you did with pine creek and so i told oh. him that we would either upload it to the description or if he wanted to watch it right after this he could go to your channel and check it out yeah or or even go to it's on pine creeks too if you want to yeah. support him as well so either either one but um give us views <laughs> yeah i'm not competitive but yeah i am <laughs> all right cool so now we're here uh oh atangela i see atangela in the comments here and teddy oh geez so um okay so now we're on to the shroud now we're on to the the big baby and i've got several timestamps that i want to play so the the first is this uh blood versus paint um which is going to earn another oops from from uh dougie i think but play the video again so i don't mess it up I closed it. The... Ah. Okay, let me open it. Jeez, you got you ruined it. I I'm got one sorry. funny moment, and you ruined. You had it. one job, and I messed it up. All right, so here here was Doug's reaction when he found it. He screwed up. 
Oops. Watch this. Oops. Okay. Oops. Oops. Oh my god. So I'm the problem. Oh, whoops. Whoopsies. There you go. That's it. That's my little joke for today. So, all right. So let let me. Huh? I said it's cute. My. All right, cool. So let's get into the Shroud of Turin then. So this is the part uh, I should be talking about the blood versus paint. And where do I go up to 5430? Okay. I know them personally. So sorry. You've talked to all the experts? Well, uh, no. Come on. Don't exaggerate, Dale. You have not talked to all the experts. And you know that there's people out there who say there's not a shred of blood on it. Yeah, just no, uh, yeah. a lot of the big ones. What is easy to say it that way? What is someone who is that? I, I was just saying, you you do know a lot of the big names. So, yeah, you've been I, I do, yeah. I'm a member. I'm a member of the Shroud Science Group. If, if you think I'm just yeah. boasting or something, check out yeah. my, my real seekers and you'll see them there. So, yeah, yeah. you're not exaggerating. <laughs> there easy are organic to, to components to analyze. You know what's on it? Iron oxide and mercuric sulfide. Great. So okay. So again, oh. no findings. Yeah, it's iron oxide pigment and vermilion pigment. It's right? red ochre, like, right? Yeah, but these have been scientifically falsified, and new. There's no one alive today who believes that the shroud is a traditional painting. Walter McCrone's work. And his peer-reviewed papers have been discredited and retracted. They're, they're no longer available on his website. And every blood expert, starting with Dr. Al Adler, or I've had Kelly Kears on the show. He's not pro-shroud. He's a shroud agnostic. He will say it's proven beyond all reasonable doubt scientifically that that's blood. That that part is not or should not be controversial. Is there anyone yeah, who's not a Christian or a theist who said, has said that? Not a Christian. Uh, yeah, uh, John Logan. Uh, I had him on my show. He is a agnostic, non-religious agnostic. Thomas DeWessel. And he said that there's blood on it. Yes. And what is his background? Is he a chemist? <laughs> no, he's not a scientist. He's a historian. Yeah, okay. Spit on him. I don't listen to him. Can you name any non-Christian, non-theist, um, Someone in the sciences who's actually analyzed it. Have they, the people who say this, have they actually touched the shroud? Yeah. Uh, Dr. Al Adler touched the samples of the shroud. Okay. He's Jewish. So I don't know if. Okay. But is he, is, did he take it under a microscope? Did he run it through yeah. a mass spectrometer? Did they do any of that? Yeah. We have his peer reviewed papers all for free. What did the they shroud. do? Did he smash? Okay. So I, I think. Oh, hi. Now's when you should part. play. Now's now's when you should play the ooh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh wow. Am I still sharing my screen or? Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. All right. Cool. Um, so see, so yeah, this, this deserves a major oops. And um, in my second review, where I'm going to be going over his after show, he does this. That's where I'm going to play the oops. He goes to the paper John Heller and um, and Al Adler. Al Adler is a non-religious Jew, uh, not a believer in Christianity at all, not a believer in miracles. He's one of the, the strictest scientists of blood chemists. Specifically, he was in porphyrins, 
for example. And um, yeah, there it's proven beyond all reasonable doubt that there's blood there, right? So here's You're some sharing of your screen again, Dale. I didn't know if you. I'm, I'm doing it on purpose. Yeah, okay, so okay. I'm showing you. Here's some of the experiments, right? John Heller, chemist. Can you maximize that. it? Sorry. Uh, Do it one more time. There you go. That'll work. Got it. Yep. So you can see they, they've just, they've discovered hemoglobin, just like um, Pine Creek Doug was asking for. They've found immunoglobin antibodies, specific antibodies in 1985, MNS. It was on this basis, these antigens that they were trying to they thought they could identify it as human or primate blood. Um, more recently, Kelly Kearse, who was on my show, has kind of uh, said, actually, wait, modern technology says we can't prove it's that. Um, Can I so, ask you a question? Uh, sure. Are these people Christians? Uh, Bema Baloney definitely is. I don't know what John Heller is. Uh, Al Adler is not. He's a non-religious Jew. Um, Can I ask one more question? Yeah. What difference would that make regardless? Like, is it mean None. like Christians would lie about it being blood or not? I mean, come on. Like it's, that, it's not only pure, that, but the, there's a lot of Christians that don't believe the shroud is, is authentic anyway. So, um, yeah, just cause you're Christian, you can't do science. Right. Yeah. So, it, so it that's my mind. So that's a, a point of stupidity, right? It, it doesn't matter. Look, they've published in the peer reviewed literature. Here it is. Doug, beloved Dougie himself goes to this paper. It's all available for free on shroud.com. Barry Schwartz, just look on the top right, click on shroud published papers, and you'll see blood on the shroud. Can uh, you I, send me a link to that? And we'll post it in the description for anybody that wants to go look at it. Abs absolutely. Yeah. Right. When I, when I do my blog. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, but one of the things, so he's asking for hemoglobin, like I said, that's, that's in there. He was asking about the mass spectrometer for some reason. Okay, it's not let me let me try. It. So, anyways, this is the 1980 pure in applied optics. This is one of the most prestigious secular scientific journals in the world. You don't just get. And this is in the 1970s. This isn't in the day modern days where we have all these open access journals. No, right. they, back in this day, you had to have real science. So you're just ignorant if you don't believe that there's blood on the shroud. Finally, I want to show this, right? Mass spectrometry. There you go, Dougie. It's right there. Uh, you asked specifically for this test. I don't know why you ignore all of the other tests. We, we did about 15 spectral tests, including UV fluorescence, which proves those serum retraction rings. Paint can't explain those. Um, you'd have to say he painted with blood for that. And here you are again. We have the hemoglobin and, and that sort of thing suffered through... Hopefully it'll, there you go. Hemoglobin was found along with various other organic components. Now, um, there is something I did want to add here. Um, I'll stop sharing. Stop can. No, what? stop screen. So Doug is also right that the infamous shroud skeptic, Dr. Walter McCrone, did indeed find these. Uh, he found iron oxide on the shroud and he found vermilion pigment or mercury sulfide is what he was calling it the chemicals right mm -hmm. this, this is proven nobody doubts this right stirp themselves in terms of the iron oxide this is the red ochre pigment the main paint according to the shroud skeptics that was used to create the body images and according to macron the the blood stains initially as well what's the problem so macron all he did was he never saw the shroud of turin in person at all 
unlike all the credible stirp scientists who are in Trin looking directly at the cloth and pointing their instruments, spectral instruments, at least 15 of them, directly at the cloth, taking a reading from the cloth. He was using the dinosaur of technology, PLM, polarized light microscopy, and looking with his own subjective eyeballs and making a judgment. Granted, he was an expert, and so it's not just some Tom, Dick, or Harry. Right. Um, so he was, that's how he did it. We had 15 spectral instruments and various microchemical tests proving that that was blood and not paint. One of those tests was the X-ray fluorescence test. This would pick up the iron oxide. If those images were composed of red ochre or iron oxide pigment, we would see the concentration of iron oxide in the image areas. What was found scientifically and proven in the peer-reviewed literature, again, I'll post these papers, it was uniform amounts of iron oxide in, in both image and non-image areas. Iron oxide did not create, is not responsible for those body or bloodstain images. Now the vermilion pigment, and this will be the last thing I, I say before I turn it to you guys, because I don't yeah. want to bore you. Um, and I said this on the show and Doug just laughed it off. Uh, quite, I don't understand, man. It, I said it was contamination. There is indeed mercury sulfide on one sample Macron only had one sample, 3CB. He looked at it. In the first place, he missed uh, He missed it. Uh, it was his team that used X-ray diffraction and discovered this, and then he went back and confirmed it. This can only be explained um, through pigments, whereas the iron oxide is explained naturalistically. It came in through the redding process of the cloth. When they put the flax... Uh, into a pond or in, into a still body of water, and it absorbs these uh, metals or these things. Um, this, in terms of the vermilion pigment, it is explainable by contamination because what people would do, they would take paintings, place it on top of the shroud to sanctify them. And we have absolute proof. Barry's even shown pictures of them doing this. And obviously, when you do that, certain particles will fall off onto the shroud from these paintings. So that's what this is. Because again, all those spectral instruments and microchemical tests in other areas did not find vermilion pigment anywhere else on the shroud. Only Macron found it in this one place. And um, it's, it's as, think about how ludicrous it is to say, well, because it's in one sample, all the bloodstains must have been touched up with vermilion pigment based again on seeing one sample, but yet we have other contaminants as well. There's pink nylon, a modern felt tip pen was found on the shroud. Um, for goodness sakes, we have insect parts. It, it is as stupid as saying, well, the shroud shroud's body images must be made of insect parts. We found an in first century pollen, right? And for, well, uh, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of the pollen stuff, but anyways, the, the point is here, um, uh, we, you know, it's just, it's like saying, oh, well, the shroud body images were made up of insect parks because we found an insect leg in this one sample. That's the equivalent of what Pine Creek Doug is doing here. Uh, so I'll shut up and, and over to you guys. So let yeah. me just ask one question. Just one question, David. I'll hand it over to you, brother, because I know you're you're a pretty much expert on this by by now, given your correspondence with Dell. Let me just say it for the people in the back. Dell, let me ask you this. Is the image or let me let me be more specific. What you're saying is the blood stains that are on the wrists, on the side, and I don't remember if there's any on the feet or not. Those are legitimate blood, and they're not paint. 
Is that correct? Hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty David, go ahead. <laughs> you just convinced Tyler. Hundred <laughs> percent. No, I'm convinced that there's blood on the shroud. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I think it, it's a foregone conclusion, and you know, even for those that don't believe the shroud's actually Jesus, it's got to be somebody, <laughs> you know, because that's I, that's what I've always heard. You know, like. My dad, he was a, a skeptic of the shroud uh, when he was alive, and he would, you know, we would go back and forth on these things. And this is when, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, way before uh, I was even a committed Christian, even uh, I thought it was a cool thing. And we would argue a little bit about it. And you would like, son, it says this, it says that it can't be real. And then finally, one day we were watching a documentary together. uh and there was some stuff that came out about it. And he was like, you know, it's got to be somebody, you know, and that was kind of like the consistency. Somebody, somebody did die. That's a real person. That is real blood. And that's when he was like, yeah, it's real blood, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, yeah, by all I, means, we, we can't. I don't, I don't, it, it's been known for a long time that that, that that's blood. <laughs> yeah. It looks like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we, can't prove a lot of things. You'll hear in pro shroud circles, uh, you know, oh, we've proven it's human or at least primate blood or it's AB type. I don't think we, I think Kelly Kiris has um, done a, a convincing, at least a convincing job to me to say like, okay, it's too soon to make that claim. Mm -hmm. Others in the pro shroud thing will disagree with Teddy. will say, Dale, you are, what's wrong with you? We can prove this. And you know, she, I would call her an expert in the blood. She knows a heck of a lot more than I do about it. So, you know, she, this is what she's writing her book on. So, but still, I, I am convinced by, it, but it is absolutely blood. That is beyond all reasonable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry. Can I ask another question? No, so, I'm still going. No, I'm just joking. Well, then go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm just thinking, go ahead. <laughs> Remember, I've got more clips as well, so. Okay, fair enough. So I, I do want to stay on this for just a second, though. So the image, though, the image is what fascinates me more more than anything. And, and granted, I think the blood just adds to that. Dale, has there been any, I mean, and I'm sure there has, so please uh, educate me on this because I don't know. I'm not a shroud expert. I'm not a shroud no, novice. Like, I, I just don't know. Um, the image, do we know how the image was formed on the shroud? Or can we rule out that it was painted on there? Does that make sense? So two questions. Yeah. Is it paint? And if it's not, can we understand and do we know how the image itself was formed on the shroud? It is absolutely not paint. Um, okay. the, again, the, that's what I was just saying. Like all those spectral, spectral instruments prove, prove beyond all reasonable doubt, not to mention all the chemical tests that they did uh with the samples once they got back home so yeah it's not painted um by painted and you're meaning a traditional painting technique or yep what whatever they were doing and i'm not talking about just the blood i'm just i'm talking about the entire image that we can see the guy with the the hands crossed and the feet and and, and all that stuff like the entire thing is not uh, paint yeah, it, it's even it's even more certain for the body images than the blood stains. Like, okay, right. Not, not that I, like uh, there is Julio Fonte. He's a bit of a, a weirdo in pro shroud, not a, as an insult, but I'm just saying he's yeah. got a unique idea. Okay. Where he, he posits that maybe some of the blood going based on Walter McCrone's findings and just assume, he's like, let's just assume the shroud skeptics right. Maybe there is vermilion. He's like, maybe some of the blood stains were touched up, so it's still blood, absolutely proven. 
Okay. But we've also, he also thinks maybe they were touched up with vermilion pigment. That's his hypothesis. That's not a, a popular one with a lot of pro shroud guys, but it's a respectable thing. Um, I would just okay. say that that contradicts the data and the peer reviewed journals, as I understand it, that we have from STIRP. So, okay. Uh, but yeah, read, read Julio's paper and decide for yourself on that. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to add before we head on is, is, the whole thing about scientists being Christians, I, I do got to harp on that, man. As long as these people have degrees, you know, uh, you would be mad if it was uh, uh, if we did that with atheists, you know. Oh, oh, we can't we can't trust your your research because you're atheist. So, you know, I mean, it's just it's it's terrible. It's bad. It's it's a bad way to argue. And uh, as long as the person has credentials. And they got their credentials uh, from a, a, a correct place, and they're certified. Then you know what? They can make true conclusions. It, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Exactly. Just, it yeah. bothers me when that when when people say, "Oh, just because they're Christian, they're going to be biased." For for Not anyone necessarily, for anyone interested here and thinks that Pine Creek Doug is making a, a good a point rather than just some stupid ad hominem, go to Shroud.com. Here's here's Sterp. Everything for free. Check out their 62-page original test plan. This thing, they spent 17 months before going to Turin to test the shroud, coming up with this detailed and rigorous scientific test plan. It was so rigorous. That's why they were selected. The STIRP team was selected to do this. Take a look at it for yourself. Can you Walter, go back up to that picture? Which one? The, the very first one on the cover page. That is so cool. That is so cool. Anyway, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. And, and this is for free. You can check it out. Walter McCrone, the shroud skeptic of that time, he submitted his own proposal. and It was rejected because it was nowhere near as thorough and rigorous and steeped in the scientific method as what these STIRP guys did. Don't believe me? Go to shroud.com and read it for yourself. Here are those published papers. Look at these. 26 of the, and Barry's posted even more, all in secular uh, peer-reviewed journals with the highest impact factor around, right? Um, so yeah, check it out for yourself. I wanted to show the audience, you can go here and read all of these for free yourself. If you, you know, that's the, the point of peer review. You can check to see if we're, if we're just a bunch of biased Christians or not, you can see what they did, what they can, and how they made the conclusions they did. Right. Uh, so it's just ridiculous to say they're Christians. So we dismiss them. That's, that's dumb. Sorry. Sorry. No offense to Pine Creek, but, uh, well, yeah, uh, just stop being dumb. Don't, don't say that. Okay. Let's be educated. Well, real quick though, before we move on, I don't think you answered my question because David had jumped in uh, before you could. So if the image is not paint, then the, the entire image, is what I'm talking about, what, do, what do we know what it is or, yeah, or so how, go ahead. There, there is some controversy, but I, the prevailing opinion of, of what makes up the body images is degraded cellulose. So, you know, when you leave your newspaper out in the sun and it turns yellow, okay, that's yeah. degraded cellulose. That's what the body images on the shroud are made up of. And right. most scientists will agree with that, right? They'll, they'll say, yeah, well, the, the other thing is, oh, well, they'll say, well, it's, it's a staining. It's like an acid staining. Maybe some, somehow it's been stained that way. So that's the contrary skeptic opinion. So what does that tell you, though? It, was there somebody wrapped in this cloth, actually, and and they left a stain on there, or, or what? Well, How would you no. answer that? 
Yeah. So like, um, that's getting into like the image forming mechanisms and stuff. So I, right. I've, been, I've done my de detailed shroud solo shows where I evaluate the traditional painting hypothesis. I've, I've evaluated all the ordinary artistic hypotheses and in relation to my minimal relevant features, which I briefly mentioned on the show, they, they all fail. So let's take the, let's start with the traditional painting, for example. Right. So I mentioned on the show, this would not account for the non cementation or superficiality of the body images. It couldn't be uniform if that was the case. Uh, another thing they discovered through is there's no directionality of the body images, meaning there's no detectable paint strokes. If you use a paintbrush, we can tell, okay, you did it vertically, diagonally, uh, and this is on every other painting right. in human existence. There are no brush strokes, right? So that would, those are just a few of like the, about, seven categories of minimal relevant features that disprove that same with direct contact. Um, I've gone through that and disproven that that would work. So in the first place, we wouldn't have these full images because if it was direct contact, um, there are certain areas like the tips, the sides of the nose wouldn't be touching the cloth and therefore wouldn't stain the cloth and, and encode that. Another thing is that we have these vertically mapped wrapping distortions. Okay. So this is, really important, but scientists have proven, again, it's in those peer-reviewed papers by John Jackson, mathematically that the encodation path was strictly vertical, either rectilinear or perhaps curvy linear, but it's it's like a straight line from the body to the cloth, a, okay. a vertical path. That was how the images were encoded. If you did direct contact, you would have to press the cloth to the nose and you would get a different path. It would be a wider path, creating wow. wider images, like the mask of Ag Agamemnon. You see now it's like a flattened pancake. Yep. That's how it would look, but that's not what we have with the shroud. So that's one of the reasons to outrule out direct contact. Um, and same with gas uh, diffusion, right? If gas diffuses from the body it and stains spreads. the cloth, it would be even wider. They wouldn't have right. a vertical path. So that those are a couple of ways we refute that, right? Yep. Um, cool. Um, so let me ask you just one more thing and then we can move on. Do you, given what you have done with the shroud, given your experience with it and your research on it, do you believe that that was Jesus in that cloth? Yes, I, I believe okay. it's, it's not overly strong. I'm not overly confident given the evidence, but, uh, again, separating out the miracle image stuff. Um, obviously with that, then yeah, of course it's even stronger. It's strong that it's Jesus, but separating that out and just looking at the historical or evidences pertaining to dating, I think it's more probable than not. Um, but it's not okay. like 80% or, or something. Of course. Like that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, cool. That's all I needed. No worries. All right. So our next clip is on the carbon 14 dating. Uh, so 55. All right. You guys can see me here. Can't you guys hear. are hearing. You can't hear. Son of a gun. While Dell's getting that fixed, I just want to encourage our listeners. I see we have 10 people watching. That could be 10 possible likes. That means if you don't like it, then you're not enjoying it. And if you're still here, you're liking it. So give us a thumbs up if you would. That helps us out with the algorithms and helps us get this video and, and this episode out to uh, the masses the algorithms like likes and we do too so if you're watching this and you're still here with us give us a thumbs up make sure to subscribe to that real seekers 
YouTube channel and Faith Unaltered as well. Go ahead, Dale. All right. So this is the bit about carbon-14 dating. Do, do you just say it's contamination? Like we can jump to the chase here. It's an ex it's a form of extraordinary contamination. And basically what what I don't take the invisible wave, which is what um, you were mentioning. My, my friend Joe Marino, he's kind of started that view. I think that's probably false. I think that there is extraordinary contamination By in the what? form of neutrons. So neutrons affect carbon dating. Um, again, this was in the journal paper Nature by famous carbon-14 scientist Thomas Phillips admitted that this could throw off a first century cloth to a medieval time. Okay, let me ask you this. If it's been okay. contaminated, do you think it, the whole the whole shroud's been contaminated and that you can yeah. never, ever again carbon date it accurately? Um, so because in 2002, they did a restoration project, which kind of a we can't carbon date the cloth and get a reliable result anymore. But at that time, they removed some samples that are just sitting in a safe. We can carbon date those. And um, a pro shroud expert is a nuclear engineer named Bob Rucker, again, a friend of mine. And he's done all the calculations with what's called MCNP computer software. It's a government owned software. And he's done calculations to prove based on the slope of the dates obtained. So it's it, with the carbon dating, we didn't just get, oh, the raw dates, you know, 16 dates, 1260, 1390, stuff like that. We also got the range and the slope, the gradient. It's about 36 years per centimeter. This proves mathematically, math doesn't lie, with a 98.6% probability that there's some sort of systematic error that accounts for the results they got. Okay, so in, in other words, what I'm getting at is, could you falsify your position? Like, for example, yeah. if if we could have access to the shroud and take uh, do radiocarbon dating on basically every square inch of it, um, and it came out to more 14th century than first century, you're out, right? You're done. Uh, yeah. So, so again, okay, not on the shroud itself, but the samples that were taken off of it. Because remember, during the restoration project, they kind of screwed things up. Um, so the samples that were okay. removed in 2002. Well, wait a minute. So there's holes in the shroud? There are. There are holes. But these are the samples you're talking this. about. No, they, they took like fibers out that were kind of carbonized. And when stuff. did so they take them out? 2002. Why couldn't you just say that it was contaminated before then? Well, they didn't do anything to it, right? But I know. But let's say we okay. let's say we radiocarbon date those samples, and they come up 14th century. And well, here, why can't you just say they were contaminated? Okay, so basically, they they should be consistent with Bob Rucker's hypothesis. It's called the vertically collimated radiation burst hypothesis. And if the cloth was irradiated by neutrons. We can prove that by dating those fibers removed in 2002, they should get a date in the future, far into the future. That would, if we don't get okay, that. But let's say, let's say that hypothesis is false. That it, then we would <laughs> date and it would be game over for. Okay. Okay. So, that, so that's it for, oh, for this bit here. Um, so, yeah. So I'll, I'll just kind of explain. Uh, I'm still sharing my screen. So uh, go here. Uh, go here, I think. Um, okay, cool. So, um, essentially, there you go. yeah, cool. So, so essentially what, I, what I was saying here with the carbon 14 dating, 
I wish I didn't get into the 2002 stuff because I think that just kind of messed up what I was saying. But essentially, here's the hypothesis that I give and Bob Rucker and others like Mark Antinacci give to explain the carbon-14. We, we say that in 30 AD or 33 AD, whatever you believe, um, when Jesus rose from the dead, his body disappeared and gave off a vertically collimated burst of radiation. And these took the form of charged particles, uh, so like protons, as well as neutrons. Now, neutrons are relevant to carbon dating because these will contaminate the cloth and make it appear, create carbon-14 atoms, making the cloth look younger than what it actually is. And this is how we get, the, this is how the hypothesis says, well, why did it date to the medieval period, right? Um, so the, the first thing to know is the 1988 carbon-14 datings that we did in 1988 are flawed. So what happened in, in 88, the scientists there, and I, I'm not afraid, this is what I believe, Bob Rucker is more generous and he says, oh, I don't think they were deceitful or lying. I think they were. They took, got a total of 16 dates, okay, when they did the carbon dating. The, four of them were outliers, you know, so the range was anywhere from the 1100s to the 1400s or, or thereabouts, sometime in the 1400s. That was the total range. They got rid of four of the outlying dates, you know, the ones that were the most extreme. And they did their calculations for their peer review paper only based on the 12 ones that fit uh, or with, were within that rate, 1260 to 1390. And they, so that would give, the, that would allow them, why would they do that? What, like, what's, what's the problem? And it's because in statistics, in order for their carbon dating to be valid, you have to have a, it has to be within this two sigma range, which equals a 95% degree of confidence, okay? Now, if they included all 16 dates that they got, they would not have meet that 95% degree of confidence using a chi-square test. And that's why they had to, I think they fudged the data. They hid the information and said, oh, we only got 12 dates, and then did their calculations and, well, look, they got 95% degree of confidence, so you should believe our results are, are reliable in terms of the shrouds date. Right. It wasn't until 2017 when they were, the British museum was sued by a friend of a friend of mine, Tristan Casabianca, who's a pro shroud expert. And he's published a peer reviewed paper, which I sent to Pine Creek Doug on this um, by email that they got all that it was revealed that they had these 16 dates. And when you plug all of that data in statistically, this is the, the dates, right? The range of the dates you get from the three labs. The line of best fit is not a straight line, like what the atheists say. It's actually this, which equals 36 years per centimeter. So that, that means that thing is getting from the outer, outer edge. It's getting younger as you get closer towards the center of the cloth. And Bob Rucker's used his MCMP software to calculate Precisely. If it was irradiated by neutrons, here it is. Let me, uh, let me actually, you guys couldn't even see that, sh that table. Could you? There you go. Uh, so this is, he gives precise predictions, right? If we carbon dated right here on the shroud man, cut out a sample and carbon dated it, we would get the year 8,500 AD. And these are all the dates we would get. They tested their sample around here, around the medieval period. So it matches perfectly with 
Bob Rucker's computer uh, calculations here using MCMP software. And just a little bit about this. Uh, Jordan, the atheist and shroud skeptic, who's also a nuclear engineer, and David Russell, one of his friends, yeah. he also did these calculations. And he said, look, the, the MCMP software is so properly vetted and, and proven that if there's a discrepancy between the MCNP and a nuclear reactor, they they automatically go and check and see what's wrong with the nuclear reactor, not with the software. That's how vetted this this stuff is. So pretty reliable, sounds like. Yeah, yeah it it is definitely it. So so that's that's in a nutshell what I was trying to say um, with respect to the carbon dating. So I'll turn it to you guys, David. <laughs> he ain't got nothing. He's just going to stay on mute. He ain't got nothing. I ain't got nothing for that, man. I mean, you, you, you're presenting your side, man. So well, I'll I say don't have this. anything on that. I'll say this then. It sounds, and I don't mean this to be offensive. I don't mean this to be rude. I don't mean this to be anything like that. But it really seems like at this point in your conversation, Dale, just from what I'm listening to and what I've listened to before, it sounds like Pine Creek's really stretching. What if is not a defeater? What if is not a, refu a refutation. Let's assume, for the sake, he's wrong. Is not a refutation. And if any atheist is convinced by that, then I'm sorry. But I can just as well say, well, what if, Pine Creek, you're wrong? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. Let's not talk about what ifs. Let's talk about probabilities. Let's talk about calculations. And like what Dave the Bram said, do, do Christians actually listen to refutations of their positions? Yes. We try to take all of the evidence, not just the evidence that points in our favor. And that's exactly why Dell brought up the other four dates that was fudged in the in the other example, in the older example, right? Because, you know, Christians, I'm just going to say it, guys. Sometimes Christians do stupid things that I can't even explain. Sometimes I do stupid things that I can't even explain. But whenever, but we try our best, I try my best. And I think Dell does, and I think David does as well, to take all of the evidence into consideration to formulate our views uh, to 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 come to conclusions on our views on these topics especially and guys i just got to go ahead and say it if the evidence points in the direction you don't like you need to take the evidence and not your pet theories because the evidence is what's going to lead you to truth all right cool yeah and one thing i'll just clarify in fairness kind of thing because what I just said about the neutron absorption, that is the Christians saying what if, but what is concrete data is that slope of 36 years per centimeter, the 16 dates um, and the proof Bob Rucker has calculated that there's a 98.6% probability proven beyond all reasonable doubt that there is a systematic error responsible for those 16 dates that we got. Um, now, okay. You have to explain, well, what is that? We don't know. Bob Rucker and I am, are supposing maybe it's a neutron, a, a flux during the time of, of Jesus, but we haven't proven that yet. But I just wanted to be fair on that. But we have this data. There's a systematic error, and that means you can't rely on the carbon dating to say the shroud's medieval. You're sorry. Um, we need further testing. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Why is that? Is it because the 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 dates don't line up to the medieval time frame? I mean, I saw on there eighty five hundred what AD. So Whoa. so that's a prediction, right? So yep. you, Bob Bob is calculating. He's saying 
suppose the shroud was irradiated by neutrons. We have no proof that it was, right? Sure. He, we have. Let's proof, assume. <laughs> yeah, because we have proof that there's a systemic error in terms of the dates we got and the the slope that we got. So Bob's saying, well, what could explain that? Maybe if the shroud was irradiated by neutrons during Jesus' resurrection, that would explain things. And he's calculated that out to make a, a scientific hypothesis complete with testable predictions that can falsify or verify his hypothesis. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we, we don't, in fairness to Dave, we, we don't have evidence or proof that it is in fact neutron irradiated yet. Um, it's just a hypothesis to explain the data we have. What we do know for sure is that we can't, we're not justified in believing the shroud is medieval on the data we have so far. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. I appreciate it, Bob. Go ahead. All right, cool. So this is going to be uh, beloved David Russell's favorite part where he disagrees with me. So does oh, no. And so does Teddy, if she's oh. in the audience there. But uh, I think this is where I talk about the Shroud being a medieval miracle. So let's let's see here. It's supposed to be one hour. This data deal, our revenue streams are threatened. Let's just not upset the cart or break the status yeah, quo. Yeah, that sounds very reasonable. That, that You guys are hearing this, right? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. It's a human motivation not to date it. Again, well, shame on them. I mean, we need to know the truth. Let's, if I'm wrong, I want to know. If I'm right, uh, how amazing would that be? But the um, thing is, the desire for you to explain away the first dating, I mean, instead of just saying, yeah, why not just go with that dating? Like, there's a desire in you for it to be true. Well, it, since 2017, it's the data that actually supports this. So it's actually you desperate to want to hold on because no i can if this was data in the first century that still gets you no closer to jesus i mean it gets you to jesus's century but it doesn't mean this is jesus like this is nuts to me like that people think oh this is authentic this could be well, barnabas me, this could be this could be uh judas this could be <laughs> let, let me let me ask you is isn't it jesus can't you tell from the contextual indicators that it's even if you think it's an artistic fake isn't it meant to portray jesus i I've never heard yes. anyone's meant to portray Jesus. Listen to your own words. No, I'm, I'm from your perspective to take away. Do you think Jesus was the only person buried like this? And do you think Jesus was the only person who was crucified? So I think that there are certain contextual indicators from the wounds that suggest that whoever this guy is, he was at the very least meant to look like Jesus. So you, you don't think Jesus was the only one to be pierced on his side to make sure he was dead? That was rare. <laughs> I've, I've spoken. So to he wasn't the only one. Then. It was extremely rare. Again, we can't rule it. So out I can give you everything you want, and that still does not get you that this is Jesus. Well, I think the wounds do because here, let me say everything right. So again, the wound in the side, the scourge wounds are these are all these are all not normal for Roman crucifixions. How do you the know severity that? of the beatings? Yes, I do. How do you know uh, that? I asked. I've consulted historians. I also had um, medical experts like Dr. You, Joseph. Bertrand. I dare any historian say that there's been no other example other than Jesus on a cross that has been pierced inside. No, they, see, they don't say that. Oh, what you said. 
extremely rare. And once you compound okay, these it, factors, I'll even give you that point. extremely rare. That still doesn't get you that this is Jesus. <laughs> well, I, I think that on a balance of probabilities, it's I think you're a fool. If you say it's first century, fool, foolish and not it is an insult. Sorry. Uh, I mean, you lack well, what discernment. If, here's, a, here's a hypothesis that's very reasonable. If there's crucifixions mm -hmm. after Jesus and there was early Christians who, let's say, got crucified as well. They said, please crucify me like my Lord and Savior was. Because and the Romans just obliged them and did that. I, I that's <laughs> unlikely. They wouldn't. I doubt that they would do that. I mean, to my, according to the traditional story, that's not historical. But remember, Peter said he wanted. <laughs> uh, they did him upside down just to like mock him or something. But you know, it's because there's this New Testament narrative that the artist made this, made it like that. So, so that's where we get into the images, right? And that's where you have to get into my approach of studying the Shroud of Turin, because believe it or not, I, I don't care about the historicity. Um, so I have my own unique argument whereby I don't at all, because just like you say as a skeptic, well, if it's first century or even if it belonged to Jesus, that doesn't prove it's a miracle, agreed. But by the same token, if it's medieval, that doesn't prove it's not a miracle. This is why the science of the images, I'm, I'm a weirdo on this front, but I don't think the skeptic can prove that if it is medieval in origin, God can do a miracle in the medieval period. He can do what? it today. We talk. What are you saying yeah. now? Are you saying that even if this I'm... is from the 14th century, it's still God did it? Yeah. All right. So there... There you go. So that so that's there's two elements here, I guess. Like there, there's the first part about how do we link it to Jesus, even if it is first century. How do we link it to Jesus? And I got kept getting interrupted, right? But um, I was just going to say, look, it, it's based on the fact that I can prove the images are miraculous. Plus, there are certain contextual indicators. So there's the side wound, which is extremely rare. The severity of the beating and scourging, which is extremely rare. Um, the crown of thorns. Jesus is the only person in human history that we know of that had that so again extremely rare and there's also i never got to even hint at this on the show but there's the fact that there's no decomposition uh on the shroud um showing that if there was a body again we can prove that from the science the scientific um argument it had to be removed before sufficient quantities of decomposition li liquids accumulated on the shroud uh so that would be within a few days depending on conditions consistent with that implies Jesus's resurrection. So these are how I would say it is either Jesus or at the very least meant to portray Jesus of the gospels in terms of his death. There's also rigor mortis. There's body rigidity, which suggests he was definitely dead, but you get that from the wounds. So that's how we connect it to Jesus. Um, then we get into the second part about the medieval miracle. So um, I have slides to show on that, so I'm going to actually take a break and let David and Tyler respond to the first part yeah. it, about it, Jesus, connecting it to Jesus. David, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, I mean, it's just, to me, it's a bad argument trying to say it doesn't portray Jesus. I mean, you've, you've nailed all the points. I don't think we need to dive into that further because, I mean, there's no doubt, you know, that this is meant to portray jesus it's been a relic for how long you know and and god man it's just i, I think you would have to be kind of foolish to to make that as an argument to say that it's not just my opinion mm -hmm. i don't think it's an argument 
I, I don't think. I think let us assume doesn't give a defeater for Dell what you are saying at, at this point in the conversation. Because again, and like I said about the historicity of the New Testament, again, Dave the Brahmin, if you want to come on our show and explain your position, be more than happy to have you. But to say, let us assume and then give the opposite of what you're saying is not an argument. It's an assumption. So until Pine Creek actually, or anyone for that matter, gives a rational defeater for why this can't be attributed to Jesus, for why this can't be attributed to portray Jesus, then you're literally, and I hate to say it like this, but I will, you're standing on water at this point, right? You, not being God, are going to sink really, really fast. And so I just don't find what, what Pine Creek, and I don't know, and, and again, guys, I'm not trying to be rude here. I'm not trying to laugh or, or like at Pine Creek or anything like that. Like, but the arguments again, just seem at, at the least not sincere at the most foolish. Um, you have nothing to say at this point because you're not offering rational uh, argumentation to disprove what Dell is saying. You're just assuming things at this point. And well, I can play that game too. I can assume things all day long about your position, but until, and, and you would call me a fool for doing so. Right. So at the same time, you know, I'll, let, I'll let's, just say it by fool. I, I mean, I use that not as an insult, but in the biblical sense, it's the opposite of wisdom. You lack discernment. Right, yeah. right, right. So I, I agree with that, Dale. Yeah, uh, just just to piggyback a little bit on it, um, like you said, it's just not an argument. You know, I mean, you can apply extreme skepticism you know, but it gets as silly as, as, uh, you know, how William Lane Craig argues that, and well, if that's not the case, then why don't elephants just pop out of nowhere? You know, it's kind of like denying, uh, um, what the first premise of, of the Kalam basically. Yeah. Yeah. But and you what, know, anyways, and just, just to add to, to our, our guests in the comments, you know, you guys are making claims like shroud is fake and, and all this stuff. Then we invite you, please, please come on our show explain your case we'll be more than willing to listen to what you have to say and and prove to us we're, we're all we're asking is the same thing you guys ask of us prove jesus is real all right you made the claim sabra cadabra that the shroud is fake come on our show and give us evidence for why we should believe that claim that's all i'm gonna say awesome all right cool so I want here's here's the event of the hour. This is my unique idea. This is where Doug thought I was crazy. You know what? What? What are you talking about? A medieval? I don't get it. You know what I mean? So, and and David Russell disagrees with me. Teddy disagrees with me. So here here's my shot to convince you. Um, okay. I want, I, I've prepared uh, some quick slides from a previous show, and there we go. Oops, is that showing up? Yes. Very good. Okay, so we have to remember the burden of proof. It is the solely the Shroud skeptic who bears the burden of proof here, I think, because what they're doing is they're saying, they're making a modus ponens argument. They're saying premise one, if the Shroud, and this is an uh, outdated version, but if the Shroud is probably medieval, then the Shroud images are not miraculous signs from God that Christianity is true. Premise two, the Shroud is probably medieval. Therefore, the shroud images are not miraculous signs from God. Everyone in the debate, they challenge premise two. So do I. I think premise two is false, so they can't affirm the antecedent. 
the shroud is not probably medieval. But where I'm unique is that I say, well, let's grant, for the sake of argument, let's even grant them premise two. And can they provide the warrant for premise one? Remember, this is the skeptic's argument. They're the ones saying, well, the shroud's been carbon dated to the medieval period. It's obviously a fake. Great. You bear the burden of proof, not the pro-shroud side. You're the one making the claim. Prove to me that each of these premises are true. And I say that premise one, even if the shroud is probably medieval, that doesn't prove that God didn't do, create them miraculously in the medieval period to authenticate Christianity. Now, what are I've recorded about six attempts. Most skeptics, Pine Creek Doug has never even thought about this. He, he would have no way to provide warrant or reasons to believe that this premise is true. But here are six reasons, and I, I might not go over all of them unless you want me to. But so the first one is, oh, a medieval miracle for, for Christianity by God is implausible just in general. No, it's not. What, what is implausible about 30 AD versus 1350 AD? There's nothing. God, it's plausible for God to do a miracle to authenticate Christianity at any time in human history. And in fact, we recognize the plausibility when we respect people like Caleb Jackson, who talk about modern miracle healings authenticating the truth of Christianity. Just because it's happening in the year 2023, does it, or 2022, or 1800s, it's irrelevant. It is perfectly plausible for God to do a miracle in the medieval period or any other time in human history. Um, secondly, it's ad hoc. Um, it's not ad hoc because I'm not the one making a claim. I'm just saying, what if? I'm providing a defeater for you, skeptic, for premise one of your argument. Prove that, that I'm wrong. Give me the warrant for your premise. Here's the one that I think is where uh, most people come in, including David Russell. And they'll say, but if it's a medieval miracle, then it lacks sufficient attachment. It's not attached to the truth of Christianity. And this is where I, I would say that that, is, that kind of thinking is not true because you just proved it is attached to Christianity by saying from the contextual indicators, we can tell at the very least this is meant to portray the Jesus of the Christian gospels. And, an essential belief. His, it attests to his death and to his resurrection. So if we have independent scientific proof or evidence that says this thing is a miracle, that the images are miraculous in nature, I don't give a rat's patoot if that thing dates to 1350 versus the thing. It doesn't, we don't have to link the case for a miracle to it being the actual burial shroud of Jesus in 30 AD. No, maybe God created these miraculous images on a cloth. In the first place, it's not a, it's not consistent with the first century burial shroud. It's more akin to like a cloth, a tablecloth. And I think that's explainable because Joseph of Arimathea was in a rush to bury Jesus. So they, they didn't follow everything proper. He's like, I've got this cloth handy. Let's bury him in that. And, you know, Jewish law uh, has been proven that there are flexibilities in extreme circumstances like that. So that's perfectly explainable. But um, the point that I'm making is we have this sufficient attachment based on the number one, we have proof that it's the images are miraculous. That has to be a given. Secondly, we can tell it's meant to portray Jesus. David Russell and Tyler, we all just agreed. So that therefore my point is that a chronological attachment to the time of Jesus isn't necessary to prove uh, that it is, that it's a miracle attesting to Christianity. Um, yeah, go ahead. It'd be a miraculous hoax. 
Well, what would be ho a hoax about it? Okay, so a burial shroud, okay, is a burial shroud. It's meant to it, it, if God's trying to portray uh, the death and burial of of Jesus, right? And he does that in the 13th century. That's kind of hoaxy. It's it's not it's not really there to me. But a because it is a burial shroud and it is meant to portray Jesus. Why? It's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus lived in the first century. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He rose in the first century. Okay. All those things happened in the first century. So it wouldn't be conducive to be miraculous if it, uh, um, it, it, it saying it's the, a burial shroud of Christ. It, at that point, it is not the burial shroud of Christ. And thus it's a hoax because it's not the burial shroud of Christ. Okay. So, yeah. So, so what I come back with is so again, the, it's the intent of what the shroud is. Dale, and what it's meant to be. It's a burial shroud, okay? So it would not be the burial shroud. Thus, my point would stand. It's uh, it's not the burial shroud of Christ. Thus, the shroud of Turin would not be what it's claiming to be. Okay, so and in my response to that then, fair point. Um, and just for the sake of the audience, remember, I'm, I believe that it is, in fact, the shroud that covered Jesus' corpse. That's, that's what I actually believe the evidence Yeah, proves. me too. Absolutely. I'm just speaking hypothetically, pretend it wasn't, pretend this is a medieval miracle of God, right? And is that a problem? And I don't think it would make God a trickster in the way that David R. Russell is arguing here, because number one, it's not actually technically a burial shroud. There's nothing about the shroud itself whereby God is affirming this is Jesus' burial shroud. That's solely a, a, in this hypothetical, a false assumption of the medieval people. And maybe God in his providence allowed that. He knew that the people would be tricked as a way to perceive it, but there's nowhere where God is positively, this is Jesus's burial shroud. He just created the miraculous images on this cloth. And then people came to false assumptions. But, but Dale, that's exactly what the claim has always been though. That this is a relic that has gone back and was found, and it was the burial shroud of Jesus Christ. That's what the claim has always been. That's what it's been always treated by uh, people as the burial shroud of Christ. Okay, and it, and as again, that's what the image portrays: a dead man uh, with 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 his side wounds and a crucified man from the first century. That's what it's portraying. So I I don't. This is why I didn't get it. This is this is, you know, it, this what it represents, what it's supposed to be, what it always has represented, is not that if it's a, a forgery coming from the future, for from the middle oh, well, century. At yeah. that point, it's more probable that it is a hoax than it's than it's than it's not. Now, yeah, the the images could be miraculous, and it could definitely be. Uh, done in some weird way you know i don't know maybe somebody figured it out like they figured out how to put the pyramids true north i don't know <laughs> but i would be more skeptical and not accepting of it being a uh, 14th century because of what it's meant to portray throughout history okay, and what? what it has it's not just an assumption i mean we've got the we've got the man buried with the side wound uh a crown of thorns and holes in his, his wrists and his feet but anyways i digress okay so let me try to make some progress then with you. I, I had three points. Uh, I've forgotten what the first one was now, but um, 
Um, oh, yes. Okay. So, so in the first place, it's not the case that just everyone accepted this from the beginning. The, the Pope, the King, I mean, this is a shroud skeptic point of Hugh Ferry. They'll say that just call it a representation. So they differentiated and didn't say it. Um, I believe that there were people that some people thought it was real. Some people didn't. That's what the evidence in the earliest period suggests, including the anti-Pope Clement, the King of France and Bishop Darcy. So it, it, God did provide means for people to know that it was just a representation within the context of this hypothetical medieval miracle scenario, right? Secondly, again, it's not God making the positive claim. It's people from the beginning making a false assumption. And God uses false assumptions all the time. He does, But so long as it's not God stamping it, this was the burial shroud of Jesus when it's not, that's where it would be a problem for me. Now, I have two things for you to try and help if we can make progress. Number one, let, let me give you this example. Let's say you have a modern painting of Jesus depicting his death and resurrection, okay? And he, and then one day you're praying for a miracle, and for whatever reason, God in his providence performs one. He zaps that painting from 1985 that's in front of you, and he creates miraculous images, miraculous in the same way the Shroud's images are are miraculous. Um, and it's attesting, it, attesting to Jesus' death and resurrection. Would you dismiss that miracle as a, as a trick or a fraud or something? Or Absolutely not. I would not. And the reason I would not, the reason I would not is because it's not, it would be a representation, like you said, with the Pope and then the, 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 this and that. Yeah, that's fine. That It could be a representation, but you got to remember you're right. People did deny it back then. I think that 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 first point you made was a little disingenuous because they argued about its authenticity and they're all what they're arguing about was was it the actual burial shroud of Jesus? OK, that has to be established. That's it. It's not assumed. It's just not an assumption these guys made. These guys has reasons why they rejected it. They had reasons why they accepted it. OK, of course they did. Of course they did. And the image is, is part of it. So they they, they they debated its authenticity, and they have oh. been debating the authenticity of it for years of what it actually represents. Is it the actual burial shroud, or is it – like the images are not a big deal if they became on there miraculously. On that, God can do a miracle anytime, like you said. We agree there, but it's not what the shroud represents. The shroud represents uh, – the, the death, burial, resurrection as authentic or not. That's the, the whole debate. Okay, well... well, And it wouldn't be Jesus being... Me, that wouldn't be his burial shroud anymore. So Right, that, it's a miraculous painting. I didn't say it takes the form of a shroud, but it has the miraculous property. Now here's this, my second thought experiment for you. And okay. this is real in real life. People claim this in Spain. Um, people say that there have been miraculous copies of the Shroud of Turin, whereby... Uh, miraculous copies of the shroud uh, on a burial cloth and everything pop out of thin air and make them the images just appear on their own miraculously. Now, again, we're not, I don't believe whether this is true or not, but let's say this is true. Would you think, is God deceitful then? What do you mean? Say that again. Like there are, uh, there put are, it away. I'm not understanding you. There are, you're phrasing this question. there are duplicate duplicate shrouds of Turin's that are copies that are known to have come into existence in the 21st century. 
but they were said to have formed miraculously in Spain in the 21st century. And there, there are burial shrouds. So it's the exact same as the Shroud of Turin. If someone would say, yeah, that's uh, meant to represent a burial shroud kind of thing. They, so, they would be hoaxes. They would be false. They wouldn't be his burial shroud. He died in the first century. He rose in the first century. That would not technically, logically be his. Regardless if God was just doing it you know, willy-nilly, it still wouldn't be actually the Jesus we know of history's burial shroud. Yeah, but it's not claiming that the, the whole point here is that the shroud itself. The Turin shroud God. itself is is always always been claimed to be Jesus's burial shroud. Okay, that's the, that's been the debate the whole time. It's never people, not been the debate between people, right, David? So I'm saying the shroud itself, the church, yeah, images himself, themselves, and God. Nowhere claim that that is Jesus' burial shroud. Human beings made a false assumption. No, and no, they didn't make a false assumption. It obviously has a long history, yeah. and this long history has always maintained the claim that this is the burial shroud of Christ. That's what it's always been. That's always been the claim. And there's reasons for that. But David, and the reasons God, are... Is there is no history here. I don't want to interrupt, but... okay. But again, I agree with you that it that there is this history, and it does go back to Jesus. I'm not saying mm. I believe it is a medieval yeah. miracle, but the assumption here is that it is a medieval miracle. Is that a problem? And yeah. I'm saying the shroud itself is not saying this is the authentic burial cloth in and of itself. It's not saying made in Jerusalem. Well, the... <laughs> you know I mean? But Dale, you can't divorce all that from it. I don't think you can divorce those things. That's okay. what I'm saying. I okay. don't think you can divorce the history from it. Okay. Uh, it, it, even if if the shroud was a medieval miracle, then that's all it is. It's just a medieval miracle. Okay. That part I already agree with you with, but it's no longer the burial shroud of Christ. Yeah. No, I'm not claiming it's the burial shroud yeah. of Christ. It's a miracle attesting to the truth of Christianity. That's all I care about. I don't care about it being Jesus' burial shroud at all yeah and it's, and i think I, and at that point you know um to claim that it is i mean <laughs> it would have to be a false assumption but anyways that's it, you know where i stand on it <laughs> it's interesting dale regardless I, I understand where you're coming from but what one last clarifying question then because i just want to understand you i'm not challenging you i just want to understand no, what you're fine. saying so, so those images are a medieval miracle they're supernatural in nature this is a given, okay? I'm giving you this as a hypothetical. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it's from the medieval period, and it's exactly what we have. Um, so it, do you say that God did that to attest to the truth of Christianity? Or are you saying, like, Satan did it as a trick? Or, like, how do you explain a miracle if it's if it's a fraud? Kind of what you, if it's a miracle, then it can't be a fraud, right? I mean, if it's, if it's an actual miracle of some, you know, I mean, can Satan create a shroud like that? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think he has that type of creative power. I don't give him that much credit. But, uh, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to make an assumption and give it a whole theology for it right now. But Tyler's just like, David, shut up. No, I'm not even paying attention. I'm talking to David. Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry if it's boring. Man. So, oh. No, it's not boring. I'm just more focused on this right now. So, no, but I think it's interesting whenever people bring yeah. claims to the table and not actually gives, you know, arguments 
for their claims. They just keep making claims. It just, I don't know. It, it doesn't like infuriate me, but at the same time, it's like, y'all don't even realize you're just making claims about something. Give me so, an argument against our position. Sorry. Go ahead, David. No, okay. So David, yes, yes or no, you could, you could in principle accept yeah. that it is a medieval miracle by God to attest to the truth of Christianity. Um, so long as it's not, saying that it was Jesus' burial shroud. Yeah, I mean, we can't we can't sit there and debate on it being authentically Jesus' burial shroud. We can't. At that point, it's, it's, it's there's no way. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So so that's all I'm saying. So, so, and that's why I'm saying it, it, that argument, bringing that argument to the table, throws everybody off. And it puts everybody into confusion. Okay? Uh, because... That's what the debate has always been. Gotcha. We can't go. We can't. We can't. We can't divorce the, the claim. I mean, that's the claim. That's no, the we... central claim of the Shroud of Turin is that it's the burial shroud of Jesus Christ. That's the central claim. That's what it's always been. You take that away, it's not no longer the burial shroud of Christ. It could be a, a medieval miracle of some sort. It has totally nothing to do with the, the burial shroud of Christ. But I have a big problem with that because it resemble a burial shroud. It, you know, it, the portrayal of it is uh, the burial uh, uh, of Jesus. Um, yeah, man, it, it, and it bothers me that it would portray a crucified victim versus a a, a resurrected uh, a resurrected savior that gives me the hope of joy and peace. Now it could, I guess, represent the atonement and what it costs. So, I mean, it's interesting, but uh, no, but as far as the claim goes, it would, yeah, it would no longer be able to reside in uh, that claim. It could not reside in the claim that it's the barrel shroud of Jesus. Gotcha. Yeah. And that's fine. Like uh, my whole point is, look, I'm revolutionary. The fact we've made a mistake by linking the authenticity of that thing to proving that it has to be belong to Jesus to be authentic. Nope. It can be, if we've got the scientific proof that that thing's a miracle and we have the contextual indicators that it is attesting to Jesus' death and resurrection via a representation, uh, in this case, a miraculous one, that is sufficient. Uh, that's my point. So yeah, hey guys, can yeah. I jump in real quick? So, um, because it sounds like you guys are kind of keep saying the same thing and just going around in circles. Oh, so fine, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. That's what that's what I was gonna say. But real quick before we do, so I think uh so I'm been in the comment section for a little bit now. And Titan, uh, let me just find his uh comment where he said this. Sorry, it's been a anyway. Uh anyway, basically the claim is that the shroud is uh, a painting or ah, oh, here it is. Here it is. I found it. Uh I gave you the evidence you need above. This is a painted portrait or in or an engraving of a Bas relief. And now I know we've already talked about this, um, given the evidence, Dale, that you put forth about the bloodstains and even the portrait itself. The picture is not, in fact, a painting. I'm not quite sure, and I will claim ignorance on this, about a Bas relief. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but could you just give a summary before we move on on uh, whether you agree, disagree? I'm sure you disagree, but, but can you tell me why exactly for Titan? Yeah. So in terms of the painted portrait, I already falsified that earlier, right? It can't explain the minimal relevant features. So 
there are no brush strokes. It's impossible for it to be a portrait. Can't be right there. It's done. Um, in addition, there are other things you can't uh, explain the body image superficiality. You can't, um, I'll mention this one, the th three-dimensional information or topographical information. It's impossible to hand paint um, with a paintbrush and paint uh, the three-dimensional information that we see with the shroud where it's perfect. And this has been, there have been scientific experiments. This is where I was telling Doug about that we lack the hand-eye brain coordination uh, and he laughed at me to create yeah. these images and it's been scientifically proven it's impossible certified forensic artists a whole team of them and they were given anchor points to help cheat to give them to help them draw 3d images impossible they came out nothing like it um so they can't reproduce it now with the bas relief this is why this is a step up so these are used in like powder rubbing mechanisms like the one doug creek gave with luigi garlicelli and bas reliefs um, have inherent in them some three-dimensional information. And the reason we have to use a bas relief instead of like a 3D statue is again, because of that wrap around effect. If you wrap the thing around uh, a statue, it's gonna be like a widened uh, encodation path type thing. So the bas relief avoids that. And that's why a lot of people use that for the face or the, um, uh, the face there kind of thing, right? Um, but yeah, so the bas-relief doesn't provide perfect three-dimensional information like we have with the shroud. Again, Luigi Garlicelli, we've put his images into a VP8 image analyzer. It's it's like steep vertical cliffs. And like what happens is it's like contact or no contact. It's like, so you have a vertical cliff, which is contact, or you have like a, a deep valley. Uh, it's nothing like the Shroud of Turin. Um, I can try and look for a picture at some point for that, but okay, I appreciate it. We can we can move on now. Okay. Uh, so the next thing is the uniqueness to the uh, to the Muslims. So here, there's a short mm. video. Okay, so this uh, Pine Creek just posted today. There's no way to maximize it, I guess. Uh, can you just maximize your window? No, or no, no. Okay. Okay. Um, so cool. So he's talking about the uniqueness of the show. Typically, virtually impossible to do. You can't reproduce the full 3D images using this technique. Because this is impossible. This is impossible for a mere mortal human being to do all that while being illiterate. It's it's impossible scientifically. It's impossible for an artist to do a good job. We have, we have the experiments done, right? Um, it's, it's impossible for him to have the hand-eye brain coordination. It's necessary. impossible to have the hand-eye coordination. Because it's literally impossible to be so great without the help of the Almighty. It, it's physically impossible. Physically impossible for what? For them to recreate the Shroud's images scientifically virtually okay so yeah so that's that clip but basically the the main point here is um he's comparing me to a muslim and he's basically saying you're arguing the same way they are they say it's impossible and another point he made uh, in the original video is that you're like a muslim because you're claiming oh the shroud's unique no one can reproduce it well that's like the muslim saying that their poetry poetic patterns in the quran are so unique no, they're the most beautiful things ever. And 
I just expose this as the fallacious reasoning as it is, because number one, I've studied these things, right? So with Shabir Ali, one of the world's experts, and the poetic patterns are nothing like the shroud. Number one, they're not unique. Dr. Raymond Farron has written a book uh, that proves these patterns are everywhere, both before, during, and after the time of Muhammad or the time of the compilation of the Quran. Um, so that just doesn't apply at all um, in terms of this uniqueness argument. With the shroud, it is unique. It's a scientifically proven objective fact that it has these properties and that people have done experiments trying to reproduce it and they've all failed. Um, so I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that and turn it over to the others. Yeah, Dale. I, it, arguing like this is is pure ignorance. If you ask me, it's ignorance to the data. It's not well studied. Just because you claim something's impossible, I mean, how would you, you could you could say this for other arguments too that other people make. You know, it. it if you say something's impossible, it could be impossible for real, you know, and it's not like you're making this claim uh, from ignorance, you it's know, um, you're not a, a Muslim makes this claim as you just presented because you've done the research. A Muslim that makes that claim is making it from ignorance. It's a fallacy to. I want to say it, this is a logical fallacy that, that that he's doing. It's a faulty comparison, you know. Um, so yeah, it, it's. I, I was joking. I was joking. Kind of a composition fallacy in a way because it's you know he's not. It's it's not all the religious claims are just because there's a religious claim you can put in the wall, you know doesn't mean that this religious claim you can. So it's kind of, it, that's how I kind of see it, kind of like a composition fallacy in a way. Am I correct there with my fallacy, or is it something different? Yeah, it's, it's just he's making a false analogy, as you said. It's, it's, yeah, it's, totally, it's in, in the first place, it's, it's just the uniqueness of the Quran in terms of its poetry patterns is not provable, whereas the Shroud's uniqueness is provable in the relevant sense that I was saying. It was unique. Um so that right there kind of totally refutes him. And in terms of the short video, he was more comparing me. He failed in that because he, he didn't know that I studied with Raymond, Raymond Farron's work on the poetry, poetry patterns. And so he changed it to be, well, Dale said, Dale said it's impossible to copy the shroud. And this Muslim said it's impossible. So I was kind of joking with Doug. I'm like, okay, great. The next time an atheist tells me that miracles are impossible, I'm going to com just compare you to a Muslim reasoning and say you don't know what you're talking about then um so yeah just because we both use the same word does not make us analogous um I so i disagree i disagree with both of you guys i actually agree with the faithiest atheist on this one and because pine creek played silly music i am compelled to believe him that's all i'll say about it by the way pine creek send me that link because i want to use that uh that sound effect bag of milk <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, guys. I agree with well, you. Well, I, I think I think we've we've <laughs> we've we've responded to this well. I think we have hit the nail on the head, uh, you know. And it's time to put this coffin in the ground. Uh, yeah. Um, thank you, thank you so much to uh, you yeah. and Tyler for uh, letting me come on and just kind of respond to some of the the points that Pine Creek raised that I just find were not compelling, and I think I responded 
pretty well to them. And uh, thank you, David, for having a little bit of a go with me on the medieval miracle thing. That's uh, yeah, I'm glad I, I won that. So it's uh... <laughs> well, you are a heretic, so yeah, <laughs> so I let it go. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I don't drink from a bag. So. <laughs> oh, you, got, you, you never, you never even drink from a bag of wine. No, I don't like what, bagged wine. I like bottles. Um, oh, anyways, <laughs> no, I agree with you. You guys, bag of milk. Love... I know I've used. So this probably be uh, well, Dale, you'll probably be with us next week on Sola. So we'll you know what? Again, again guys, I'm just Dale gonna say Dale is a Faith and Altered co-host now. I officially yeah. recognize him as that. Congratulations! <laughs> awesome. If I had a sound effect, I'd play it, but I don't. God so. just kind of miraculously did it. Like he burned those images in the 14th century, right? It's like <laughs> he burned Dell's image on the computer screen that you're seeing now. Yeah, right. There you go. Tyler, I refuse to work with this heretic. So sorry. Yeah, it's it's me and you. <laughs> you can't quit. You just got hired. No, no I'm saying David's out. He's fired. Oh, it's David, oh, I'm fired. Oh, oh, no, no. I'll send you my shirt, Dale. <laughs> David pays the bills, so I don't know. Actually, yeah. Yeah, we need to keep him on the panel. So, (laughs) all right. Thanks, guys. Well, gentlemen, it's been a great Tyler. Uh, It's been a great Tyler. I I agree. I agree. I think it has to. And Tyler, (laughs) I want to ask you know, I'm really excited about our next show. It's this wonderful Sola Scriptura open mic night. Yeah. People are allowed to come, hang out, do whatever they want, talk about whatever they want. But we're going to start by talking about Sola Scripture. And usually when we start a conversation like that, it lasts. And everybody's got opinions and we want to jump in on it and this and sure. that. I hold the Sola Scriptura, but it, it, not in the way that some of you might hold to Sola Scriptura. Mm-hmm. You know, you might have a differing definition, you know. Um, and that's fine. Let's talk about it. Um, I'm also going to be talking about it with our good friend, Jeremiah Nortier, uh, from the Apollo, from the Apollo, the apologetic, the dog <laughs> or yeah. Apologetic, the dog. Yeah. So he's, he, he has a channel. Go check him out. Subscribe. He's got some good stuff on there. Um, but yeah, again, guys, you know, we're totally listener supported. Uh, in many different ways, you know, the algorithms work when you subscribe, you like, and you share, you know, so please do that for us. If you're watching and you're a regular watcher, you know, we do have this thing called YouTube studio so we can see that a lot of people watch, but a lot of people don't subscribe. Actually, we get more people that watch than they do subscribe. <laughs> regular people that come on, that, that watch thing. us regular, regularly that don't subscribe. Uh, yep. Maybe it's Tyler's ugly beard that you don't like, or my uh, my hat. Look, I'll cut um, it off to get more subscribers. Okay, you just tell me. Or Dale's sunglasses. You know, I mean. But well, anyway, no. no, seriously, yeah, guys, give us a like and a share. Like I said, we've got great episodes. If you like the shroud discussion, next month, about a just a month away. We got a shroud debate between Dale and reasons to doubt. So you'll be able to get more of that. And early February, I got my good friend uh, that I, uh, I mean, he's not a good, good friend, but he's been on uh, Pora before and he's a gentleman and he's a scholar. His name is Danny from Field Talk. He's going to be coming to uh, take questions and we're going to grill the atheist. Basically, it's going to be a fun conversation, not really 
a grilling where we're going to insult each other or anything. But uh, Danny's an awesome guy. I he, he came on the show last time. We had an awesome conversation. He was very, actually really encouraging to me uh, to keep going to my studies on philosophy and stuff because he's also a master in philosophy. So, uh, but yeah, and, and, and you know, good guy, good guy to have a talk with. Uh, um, so yeah, I'm excited to have him back on and stuff like that. But that's what we got in the future, man. We've got some stuff plugged in and ready to go. We got Tim Stratton coming back on uh, yes. here soon as well. So like, I'm excited. Uh, you know, we've got a great uh, uh, lineup planned, and we got a great year planned, and we have a documentary we're going to be starting on here soon. So I I'm just so excited. And with that, I'm going to kick it to Tyler to close us out. Not only that, David, but we also have Colton Carlson that's going to come back on. So we, for those who don't know, on Faith Unaltered, we have been doing a determinism and free will kind of uh, exchange that goes back and forth between Tim, between Colton. We had a couple other guests planned out, but they didn't uh, work out and there were some problems uh, for them coming on. And so we have uh, got Colton Carlson uh, that's going to be coming back on for part two. Guys, if you have not checked out this series, so what we've done is actually put a playlist together with all of the episode episodes starting from the very beginning whenever Josh and I interviewed JD Martin on the topic of permission does God permit things to happen and that has evolved into such a great conversation I think uh, our well our co-host Josh had said at one point that this is one of the most in-depth conversations that he's ever seen on YouTube and listening to sermons about this topic because we're not here to debate it we're here to ask clarifying questions, and I think that model of this host scheme has done very, very well for this type of conversation. We furthered the, the discussion, we have, and, and not said at the same place. You know, and you guys have seen it as well as I have. If you listen to debates, sometimes the guys just go around in circles, but if you keep pressing clarifying questions, what did you mean by that? Oh, my goodness. It goes a long long way and i think we've proven that beyond a shadow of a doubt in the playlist that we have created so go to faith unaltered check out the playlist libertarianism and determinism and you will see those conversations but other than that again i can't reiterate what david said enough please subscribe to the channel we are listener supported give us a thumbs up we're trying to do everything we can to reach that thousand subscriber goal and we are so close y'all i think we're at uh 950 the last time i checked it was close to that i don't know if we've hit the 50 mark yet but we are close and we need you so if you haven't subscribed to the channel please subscribe to faith unaltered also consider and please do do more than consider subscribe to real seekers dell is one of the family now and we can't be more excited than to have him on full time with us and so dell we love you brother and if you're down for it i know we are as well and so consider yourself a co-host of faith unaltered along with josh davidson uh travis worth caleb jackson they all do things behind the scenes josh has really been stepping up and uh, being, you know, a co-host uh, with us. And so I'm excited. I'm really excited to see that. He's one of my best friends. And so to have him on the conversation, he's the one really that has probed me to, instead of debate people, ask them clarifying questions about things. And I think I've gotten a little bit better at that uh, than I was in the past. And so, guys, I love you all. David, it's always a pleasure. I love our fellowship nights. And for our listeners, I leave you with this. David, get the, get the video ready. <laughs> Good night. God bless, and ladies and gentlemen, stay like Christ.